Hello and welcome back to Metastation after our long, long hiatus. Uh, we're back with uh, to talk about episode 409, which is DNR. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. So we are going to start talking about the episode now. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, <laughs> we are struggling a little to figure out how to talk about this episode or or I guess parts of it. We we yeah. loved about 50% of it and about 50% of it we thought was full of enormous problems. So so we're going to start with the stuff that we like and then kind of work our way through of the four different storylines, but man, there were and we'll we'll get to this more at the end, but I I think sort of simultaneously I had we had a lot of issues with things that happened in the episode and I also feel and I'm sure you probably feel the same way some of the things that really got under my skin were because I feel like we're sort of looking ahead at the end of the season coming up and I'm starting to realize how many of the things that I think were dropped plot threads are probably not coming back ever and really are just sort of like dropped forever. So so that's so there's there's lots to discuss. But there was some stuff in this episode that we thought was, like, legitimately super fantastic. More of the stuff that was sort of about, like, really kind of intimate character moments and less the big Hunger Games-y war storyline stuff, which was really not so much our scene. But, yeah, so just really, like, really straight down the middle. Like, this was really, like, legitimately 50-50 for me, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And and it's sort of, like, evenly split between... Like, really sort of close, intense, intimate character stuff. People being confronted with the choice of what they're willing to endure for a chance to survive. And then, you know, war boners and the problems that they cause. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. Basically, that's the only that's the only way to put it. Huh. But we'll start with this one that we really liked. Yes. Yeah. So I really feel like everything that was happening on Science Island was pretty much note perfect, I would say. Yes, like I, I, would I agree. think the like Raven, the Becca stuff, Murphy and Mori, Miller and Jackson. <laughs> you know, it was sort of weaving together a couple of very small storylines that were mostly about one character or a pair of characters in ways that I think that got a lot of emotional work done in a really short kind of efficient period of time yeah like both raven on her own and the evolution of raven's relationship with murphy and the evolution of amori's relationship with all of the sky people like it just it, like they're what they didn't it was by far the smallest storyline i think i mean like maybe tied with like the, whatever was going on with octavia but it it moved so much ground forward in a really beautiful way that I just thought was incredibly like exciting and suspenseful because of the Becca factor, but also just like so moving. Like I was so emotional. Oh my god, I <laughs> know. So I know. I know. Yeah. No. I mean, and and I, we say this every episode. It seems like about one person or another, but it's because it keeps being true. And Lindsay Morgan and uh, Richard Harmon in that la- in that farewell oh scene. I mean, like, oh my god! I just it was it was they were they were incredible. It was just like so heartbreaking. And again, like note perfect to watch. You know, like Raven sort of like laughing through her tears, and and Murphy sort of struggling to figure out how to walk away. And so I mean, I just all the kudos to them. They were they were 
incredible. All the way throughout the episode, one of the really, and it's been building throughout this whole storyline, but really I felt like came to a head here, is the the genuine depth of Murphy's concern for Raven. Yeah. He's never not, like, even even when they're, like, just immediately, like, post-coital hanging out in the office, he's never not keeping an eye on Raven. He's, he's you know, the instant she starts acting weird, he flags, like, go get the seizure yeah. kit. He knows exactly what's happening. He's so, like, attuned to her. I think it's a really beautiful sign of both of what he's been doing with his performance and how the writing for his character has evolved that to take somebody like Murphy and and show him so like deeply sensitive and so concerned about what's happening with another human being that he used to like hate and to have that feel totally natural and organic I think is masterful yeah you absolutely believe it and you like at any moment he's making sure she's okay he's super worried he like he knows all of her symptoms he's sort of always kind of got one eye on her you feel that gut punch when he realizes that she isn't coming and then the sort of additional layer, the gut punch, when he sort of watched him asking himself, is all of this his fault? Like, has he, did he kill Raven? You know, like, yeah. is it because of him yeah. in some way? Yeah. Which was just like, oh, devastating. I mean, it was like, it was really a very beautiful moment and very, very subtly done. You know, as a moment that, that final goodbye with Murphy and Raven, how how much it advanced both characters without one being at the expense of the other. You know, like, this wasn't a case where one character was serving the other character's development, but rather, like, that sort of shared moment itself was in, it was incredibly important to both characters in different ways. And so, like, on, on Murphy's side, I think it's huge that that was a moment of Murphy acknowledging the hurt that he's caused someone, someone else, expressing genuine remorse, and taking responsibility for it. And that's something that Murphy... Not that Murphy, you know, he's not a character who who has been going around, like, denying that he does bad things. But we've never seen him in that way. We, you know, person to person. You know, just kind of say, like, I recognize that my actions caused you pain. And I regret that because I regret causing you pain. You know what I mean? Like, for no other reason yeah. than just, like, yeah. you are a person whose pain I feel sadness and remorse for. Because she's not angry. Like, he doesn't need to get something from her. He doesn't need her to forgive him so that something else to his benefit can happen. Like, she's like, it's okay. This isn't your fault. But he, like... He needs to say it. He just feels it. It's not for her. You know, I I think, like, that's the thing for... I mean, it is and it isn't. You know, I think he feels like he owes it to her. But he isn't saying it, like you said. Yeah, it's not, not like... It's not being demanded of him and it's not, it does, it's not going to do anything for him other than just right. to say it and, and to give him that healing and maybe like heal that relationship, you know? So I think like, and that's, that's a huge moment because that's, because it's Murphy and that's not something that I think we've really seen Murphy do because that like takes in a kind of emotional vulnerability that Murphy just was never comfortable with you know like that, yeah. that that murphy's so guarded and for good reason even when he opened like i mean you think back to season two the beginning of season two when they were in the dropship together after he shot her and she's bleeding out and they're having like he opened up to raven there but like most of other most of the other times when he's opened up you know he was kind of like flinging it in her face you know like she's angry right. at him for right. shooting her and so almost in revenge he tells her here's my fucked up story and it's not a way right, to connect. Right, exactly. It's a way to sort of like fend off her 
anger and it does kind of create a bridge between them but like this is a different thing this is him this is him sort of like allowing himself to be vulnerable rather than using his pain as a weapon exactly and when he says i'm sorry i did this to you if she said yes you did this and yes, it's your fault exactly. like he's ready to take yes, that you know yes. and that's so cute. yes exactly he's not he's not ducking out of it and he's not trying to excuse it he's not saying he's saying like i'm sorry I did right. this to you but you know it was for this reason yeah He's just willing to say, if she had said, like, yeah, you should be sorry, he would have taken it, you know? The fact that he's grown to this level and that it all feels really, like, organic and natural and it makes you sort of think about all the time they've been working together and him watching him, you know, like, he's never not able to see her leg brace, you know? She's never not limping. Like, it's right in front of him all the time. And so it was just a sort of really beautiful kind of efficient emotional shorthand for all of the things that he probably has been thinking this whole time about how all of their lives could be different if he hadn't shot Raven. And to hear Raven say, you didn't do this to me, that I could have lived with. That's not why I have to do the thing that I think that I have to do. Yeah, I think he needed to hear that so that they could get some closure like he needed to say it and she needed to absolve him of it. It's just remarkable that his growth has been so beautifully realized that when they finally got to that moment that's been building up for so long that it felt so completely earned and yeah, completely natural. Yeah, and I think it was important for Raven to forgive him too. You know, it's important for her to be mm-hmm. able to let that go um, and to recognize, you know, to let go of blame, whatever blame she might have had. But I think like in order for her to be able to let that go, she needed that kind of open, rec- you know, acknowledgement from him. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so like, his ability to kind of be that vulnerable made it possible for her to release it, too, you know? So this is, like, it's, like, this dynamic sort of thing that I just think is it's just, like, so beautifully done, you know? And so simple. Like, it's just, it, you know, a few words. And I also, like, with Murphy, too, I think another little, little tiny moment that I loved, um, because... It really, you know, it's like one of those little, little moments that's just like a look that an actor gives, but I just like, it made me happy because I think it really fits with a lot of stuff that we've talked to, you and I have talked about with Murphy over the seasons. And that is, Murphy, I don't think ever really loses faith in Miller and Jackson and his people. When, when Amori's yeah, saying like, yeah, why yeah. would they come back for us? He's like, they're going to come back. Don't worry. You know, Raven sort of jokingly says like, yeah, obviously they're going to come back for me because I'm awesome. But I don't think Murphy ever really truly doubts it. Like, he has, he, he seems to mostly trust them. But it, it makes perfect sense for him. When, when Amori loses faith and, you know, like, it's not so secure for Murphy, that, that faith that his people are actually his people and that they actually care enough about him to, to return for him for sure. For one thing, he will always back Amori's play, you know? So, like, it made perfect sense that when she was like, I don't trust it, he's like, okay, cool, I'm, you know, like, then, we'll, then we're going to do this. You know, like, he's the cockroach. He'll always survive, Right. Exactly. And like they're yeah. whatever, if it looks like this plan for survival isn't going to work, he's going to go to plan B and then C and then D. So like all that made perfect sense. It's perfectly in character. He's never going to, you know, leave Mori behind. He's never going to not back or play. Um, he's never going to not to look for the most likely way for himself to survive. But when Miller and Murphy, uh, <laughs> Miller and Jackson come back, the look on his face, you know, like he, he and Amori are so surprised. Yes. They look so happy. And then when they're like packing things up, there's this little pause. He looks back and there's this little smile. And I was just like, you know, and, Amor- and, and like Amori's, and he's trying to kind of play it cool for Amori, but he's just so happy, so pleased that they came back. And all I could think was like, Murphy 
is so happy to have a family again. Like that that little yes, bit inside yes. of him that has always yearned to have a place. You know, we've talked about this so much. Murphy wants to have yeah. a place. He wants to have people. He never thought he did and he and he sort of out of his pain I think was rejecting other people before they could reject him. But like just that little look, that sort of look of like, I mean, like my heart grew like three sizes. You know, I was just like, oh my god. Like M- Murphy is just like it's like he's like, yes, my my faith in them was confirmed. They care about me. They yeah. came back for me. You know, they're always gonna come back for me. Like I think it really would just like I think that was like it's a tiny little moment, but it's a huge moment for Murphy. Oh yeah. Well, it, because it's a reminder. Like what that means is. There is room in this bunker for Yes, you. Like, exactly. What it means is exactly. that the long-term plan for survival includes and, Murphy. like, the finite numbers includes Murphy and that he didn't have to earn that. He just is part of the it's group just and they were like... Yeah, and, and, yeah. and Miller and Jackson are like, what? what's your problem? Aren't you coming? Like, sorry, yeah. it took a little yeah. longer. hurry up. And the way that they act, like, it was never a question. You know, like, we ran into trouble. Oh, yeah. But never once did they... Because I think that's a big part of it, too. Never once, you know, they come back in with a, like, duh, we were always coming back. You know, um, it was never a question of if... It was never a question of if it gets too hard, maybe we won't. It was always like, yeah, dude, we got to get you to your spot in the bunker. You know, and so I think... yeah. That was a huge, huge moment. I think it's not a coincidence. You know, I think, like, that moment coming right before his conversation with Raven, in a, in a kind of, like, you know, emotional way, I think that kind of reaffirmation of his place, that he's sort of safe and secure in having a place with his people, is what makes it, you know, possible for him to have that conversation with Raven. He doesn't go into it defensive. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I think what's really beautiful is that the relationship between him and Amori, and particularly like we like we didn't we didn't get a lot of fallout, um, which I I which is a problem for a lot of reasons with a lot of characters. We can talk about more later. We didn't get a lot of fallout of the absolute disaster of how things ended at Science Island in the last episode. Yeah. But one piece of that that is sort of very subtly touched on is how whatever amount of goodwill Amori might have been building up with these people over the course of her time there was completely shattered the second they were like, we're going to shove you in the microwave and then hope that you don't die. Yeah, yeah. And so I just, so I feel like I think it's important not to overlook what it means to Murphy that Amori feels like on some level she can trust these people again. Because as long as Amori feels like she can't trust the Sky Crew, it complicates his, like he's like his desire to be part of them is complicated by the fact that she feels like she's not. You know, and, yeah. and so the fracturing yeah. between Amori and Sky Crew has this tremendous weight on Murphy because it prohibits him from really feeling like he fully belongs there too. And so I think him seeing her realize that Miller was never going to screw them over and that they really do belong, I think it's just sort of, I think it goes a little way. Like, she's never, I mean, she's never really going to feel, well, maybe a five years trapped in the bunker will do it. I don't know. But at the moment, she does not feel like she's part of them or she's one of them. But I just, I feel like it's so... It's so, it's so important for him to have that, to know that she feels like she's going to be okay there too. You know, like they also came back for Amori. They yeah, didn't just exactly. come back for Murphy. There's a spot in the bunker for Amori too. And that that also was never questioned. And I yes, think that that, yes. I think both of them needed to have that moment and getting to have that little, the way they sort of look at each other. I, I just, I think so, so making sure that, 
that both for the narrative and then also for Murphy that it sort of made explicit she is one of us now. Yeah. I think really like that needing to happen was really important too. Uh, before we move off of Science Island. Oh, Raven, so Raven, Raven. I, I really, really, truly don't think this show is going to kill off Raven. I, I just really, I mean like they might, it's the hundred, who knows, but I feel like as close as I can like predict these things, I don't really think that they are, which makes me sort of wonder and, and so like the Becca the Becca hallucination, I was watching it a little bit like this the first time, and then when I rewatched it, I was really, really thinking about, if we look at this hallucination, the way we look at the other hallucinations, it means that somewhere contained inside this is a really important piece of truth from something that Raven has absorbed without really consciously understanding what she has absorbed yet, which means my question is, is the thing that has to happen that for some reason, some part of the Save the World plan or how Raven saves herself or some something requires Raven to spacewalk. Like she has to get into space to do something or to escape something or to fix something or everyone's going to space or I don't or I don't know what I don't know what the thing is, but it made me wonder like, is is Becca the voice in her head helping her get herself to space not because she's going to die there but because something is going to happen and this is like when she was floating before and she put together part of it but didn't quite put together the whole story yeah i could see i could see that i could also see it being that uh raven never makes it to space but that solving the problems she has to solve in order to get the rocket ready and get the spacesuit ready and they gives her some kind of insight to be able yeah, to solve. Something clicks. Yeah, something yeah. clicks so that she's able to solve some other problem. Like she's able to solve the problem of how to get to space and get back again, or she's able to solve um, what like one of the night blood problems or something like that. Like I think I would agree with you. I don't think they're gonna kill Raven. Like I, I really for one thing, it's only episode four hundred nine out of thirteen. They would not be like, Raven's decide to go to space and spacewalk herself to death five episodes before the end of the season if that was actually how her story was going to end. Yeah. Like, there's just, it's too early. It's like, yeah. it's like when Clark was like, oh, you know, the ascension happened, the fake ascension happened halfway through the episode. I'm like, this is, Clark is not becoming, becoming the commander. It's like at the halfway mark, this is a fake out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that in and of itself, I'm like, there's this, that is, there's no way that like the rest of Raven's storyline for the next four solid episodes is just her slowly building a spacesuit and then flying into space and then right. dying. Because that would be a really boring story. Like we've basically already seen that story, all of the like major emotional beats of it. So my bad, so, so yeah, I, I actually. So you don't think she makes it to space? I don't think so. Because, well, I, I don't know. I mean, like there's, it's possible that. She makes it back in the... Because, like, once she's in space, we're told she can't get back, right? So, so like, what what is she gonna... Once she's up there, how... Does she know how to talk to people in the bunk? You know what I mean? Like, I, I just feel like I don't know what, yeah. what her being in space could solve. I mean, there's, like, one possibility, which is that she gets to space. We know there's a chunk of the arc still up there. So she gets to That's space. That's what I was wondering. She, like, gets in the... And it, which has alley tech. Right. Yeah. And she, like, is, she figures out that that chunk of arc is still, like, operational in some way, or she can fix it. 
And then, like, somehow the alley tech in there, you know, like, gives her directions to a different rocket. And then she's, so she's, like, radioing down so, like, some people can go from Earth up to that chunk of the arc or something. Like, I mean, I think that's possible. But I think it is also possible that simply working on the problem of getting herself to space and making the spacesuit is what's going to, like, give her the insight that she needs to solve the problem. I, I did think it was really interesting, and I, you know, I have no idea, like, this might just be one of those little sort of, like, uh, little set deck Easter egg things. Uh, so, to make the spacesuit, she was using that red mesh human sculpture. Yes! As a mannequin. I thought that was really interesting, that inside the suit is, you know, like, red being associated with Allie, you know, and sort of, like, and Raven's still wearing her red shirt, you know, and the kind of, like, the way that those... Uh, and she's building it, you know, as a result of this hallucination because of the chunks of the, the code still in her head. I thought that was really interesting as just kind of like little, little like kind of symbolic, um, linkages among these things. Well, and there was also something that I noticed. I mean, I was just, I was so excited to see Becca again. I love, Uh, Erica Sarah's wonderful, but I just really, really love Becca. Also, Erica Sarah's really pretty. So I always like it when I can look at her on the screen. (laughs) And there's that. And and I and she's like evil pretty as Allie, but she's like my hot scientist girlfriend pretty as Becca. So I'm really The glasses are definitely working on her. The glasses work, yeah. And this sassy ponytail and she's like and she's funny. But I there was a couple of moments where where she said things that felt almost like an Allie thing to say. And so I just so I was watching it thinking like Yeah. Not that it is Allie, but just that if we understand that this is all coming from Raven's subconscious, like the two the two things that I really sort of red flagged as just sort of leaped out at me as feeling like this is an interesting moment is the way that she says, you know, after Murphy leaves, can we please go back to work? Like the the sort of like unemotional kind of urgent Raven, you're wasting time. Raven, you're wasting time. Like that kind of drive felt very like the way Allie kind of bosses people around when, yeah. you know, when they're in their yeah. heads. And then the other one that maybe, I don't know, maybe it just flagged me because it sort of made me sad for macro story reasons. But when when Becca tells Raven, aren't you tired of being Clark's good little soldier? Yes. Yeah. Oh, God, that was heartbreaking. And I And I think what made me really sad about it was sort of a, partly because it really shines a light on one of the... I think real problems with this season as a whole, which is that even when Clark is in a storyline with characters she has a relationship with, they don't interact that much. I was waiting for a big Clark and Raven sort of Science Island storyline that would allow them to talking to their stuff. And, and it didn't really feel like that was happening. And so it sort of felt like I can kind of see maybe that is at this point in their relationship. Raven sees herself as like, I'm just the hands, I just go where Clark points me. You know, because it's been really since they had the big Arcadia, like Clark, Bellamy, Raven kind of leadership trifecta breakdown. That was the last time they really had concentrated kind of Clark and Raven relationship really sort of brought to the fore. And and so I think part of why it just made me sad because it felt like, because I was just thinking about like how the relationship which used to be so close is like really deteriorated. But it also made me wonder, are we meant to take that as real information? That's how Raven really feels and this voice in her head is saying this is your chance to sort of circumvent this thing that you really believe or is it like with Allie when she was possessed in Nevermore where it's like the darkest 
most negative voice at the back of your mind whispering your darkest fears, which is that for Raven, the message Becca keeps reinforcing is they don't need you. You'll be dependent on them. They don't need you in a bunker. What use are you? Like sort of reinforcing all of these like, you know, you can't be Raven down there. Go to go to space and spacewalk because down in the bunker, your friends are taken care of. You have no specific utility in this thing that's going to happen. And that, and that just was devastating to me. And it made me wonder, do we think that on some level, those are things that Raven really believes about herself? Or do we think that hallucination Becca is in some way doing the thing, kind of the thing that Allie used to do, which is taking your deepest, darkest fears and like leveraging them to get you to do something. I think it's probably, I, I think it's that because when I rewatched, when I was rewatching, I noticed that too, that Raven kept going back to the idea that, sh- that people needed her. Like when she was joking with Murphy, you know, like they'll definitely come back for me because they need me. Like they don't need you, but they need my brain, you know, like right, she's right. always, uh, she was always kind of coming back to and emphasizing her utility to people like she's important because of what she can do and if she can't do things anymore then she's not important Uh, you know the other the flip side of it I guess is that there's also a fear of her being dependent you know so that she's going to need them that she's going to be like a vegetable you know kind of that she's going to right right, um, right, yeah she's going to be physically increasingly physically dependent on people and that she's not going to be able to contribute which is you know like I think that that's the part that's I mean, that's really heartbreaking, and I think that's the part that's kind of, like, the piece of this decision that that Raven made that is really about sort of facing a terminal illness. You know, because, like, for Raven, she didn't make this choice because, excuse me, the radiation is coming, and she doesn't think the bunker's going to work. She made it because she thinks that no matter what, you know, like, the that her condition is a death sentence. That for Raven, this is more of a sort of, like, death with dignity sort of issue that she's, she's right, decided, right, yeah. like... I don't want to die the way that I I fear that I'm going to die, which is like a progressive loss of autonomy and um, abilities, and you know, an increasing pain before I finally succumb. What I want, I want to like take control of my life and die the way that I choose to die. You know, so uh, and I think in that sense, Raven's choices is fundamentally different from the choices that like Jasper and the the people at Arcadia are making. So that's part of it. But the other part of it, I think, is that like, and this was, you know, like also just really heartbreaking is that we sort of got a glimpse into it seems to me that Raven understands her value to other people in terms of her utility to them. You know, she yeah. thinks that she's important to Clark because of what she can do for Clark, you know. and And Clark is just kind of like, but like, and by extension to everyone else too, you know, so like Clark right, is right, sort of yeah. like, and I think you're right. I, I you know, so, so I, I was thinking about that before and how heartbreaking that is and, and how that seemed to be really, really deliberately set up. Like she kept coming back to that over and over and over again, you know, and especially the part where, um, where I think Becca says, your friends don't need you anymore. They don't need you to save them. You know, like once they're in the bunker, they're safe They're You've saved, you know, that that's done. That's over. You know, so there's no reason for you to go. Like, Becca basically told her, like, they don't need you to keep them alive. They don't need you to do anything. You have no use to them anymore. Therefore, your life, basically, like, you might as well just die the way you're going to, you want to die. And so I was, yeah, so I was thinking about that before, and it seemed to me like that was going somewhere. But, like, I think it's, I think you're right. I think that the, the good little soldier Clark, the good little soldier for Clark thing, 
That was a thing that, like, uh, that was it from Nevermore, right? She said that, I'm pretty sure Allie Raven said that before. Or something very, very similar to that, you know? So, like, yeah. that, you're right. Like, that that sounded like Allie Raven, you know? Like, that that sounded like the part of Raven, that dark part of Raven subconscious and what she thinks and, and believes she knows sort of coming to the forefront. And then combined with, like, the red body, you know, the red mesh body inside of the spacesuit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? I, not that I think, again, not like you said, that I think that, that Becca is actually Allie controlling her. But I think she's kind of back in that mind, in that state of mind. So if I had a prediction about where Raven is going to go, I think, I kind of think maybe there's two things. So like character arc wise, I think, or I hope that what is going to happen is that Raven's going to learn that, you know, she, that she's valuable to people just for her and not for her utility. They released the description of um, episode, I think it was 412. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the what I was thinking where, too. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, where Clark goes back to rescue someone or something like that. And I was immediately like, I think that's probably Raven. So what I really, 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 really hope is that that episode functions as basically like all those people, all the, you know, like Clark and whoever else, because I, I assume it's not Clark by herself, Clark and whoever else come back to save Raven you know, and Raven's like, you should just go. I can't do anything for you. And they're like, we're not here because you can do stuff for us. We're here because we love you because you're Raven. You know, so I I yeah, hope that yeah. all of this kind of like you're meaningless because you don't have utility is being set up to be proven wrong, which I kind of like, I would be surprised if it weren't because again, it was like so like they kept right, beating on it. Right. And the fact that she brought up Clark specifically, I think was really like they wouldn't have done that if that weren't, you know. I also really, really hope that that signals that, I mean, like, that would make me happy if that were true as well because that would mean that Clark was moving away from that sort of, like, general, like, that, like, super abstract, like, I want to save humanity, you know? It's like, well, you love, you care about humanity, do you give a fuck about any individuals? Right, 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 right. That would seem to indicate that maybe that would be like Clark might would be moving back into a storyline where she's focused on her relationships, her specific relationships, and not just constantly being like, I am trying to save all humanity in the abstract. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, a lofty goal, but not particularly compelling TV. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I think potentially might be paying off. We can come back to this when we talk about Clark and our issues later. Uh, might potentially be paying off if. Clark's disconnection is a function, is, like, going to come back around in terms of, like, conversation that she had with Jaha about these things way earlier in the season. If right, they pick right. up that thread again, then then her sort of, like, de-isolating herself and, and recommitting herself to her friends would be a part of that for Clark. So, plus, wouldn't it be awesome if Raven and Clark had, like, a giant emotional catharsis moment with each other? Oh, my God. They need it so badly. So bad. I want this for them. I, really I want, want them. a princess mechanic like saving each other from their emotional scars yes. moment so bad. Like as yes. soon as that occurred to me, I was like, please, it's been so long. It's been so long. And that's what was really getting under my skin with having them on Science Island together in the same place and not taking that opportunity to have that. Yeah. Then, you know, yeah. like I just, if you know, it, it reminded me a little bit of one of my biggest issues with season three being people in the same geographical space but not interacting you know like yeah 
how we saw for a whole season, you know, like Raven and Bellamy being so close, and yet she never seemed to give a fuck about what was going on with Not Pike. even not giving a fuck. It did not seem to be happening in her universe. It's like they were in they right. were in parallel but never touching Arcadia's, you know? Right. <laughs> and then him not noticing or caring that she starts right. acting weird after she takes the chip. Like so like things like that. You're in the same space. And we know that you know each other and you have these incredibly close relationships. And so it's bizarre to have you not interacting in the way that you normally would interact. And I think the Science Island stuff, it felt like, okay, so Clark arrived. So we're going to get like, and we, and we did, we got some good like Clark and Abby um, and some good Clark and Murphy. The Clark and Raven big moment was just kind of never there they were like standing around in the room together during big group scenes yeah well and i think the problem is like to me and we again we can we'll probably talk about this more when we get to the polis part of this episode the problem for me i think is that or i think the core of it is that clark for at least most of the middle of the season if not almost all of the season has been like firmly in leader Clark mode. She's like Clark the leader, not right, Clark right, the person, right. you know? And so she, all of her relationships, even with the Murphy stuff, even with Abby a lot of the time, all of her relationships are predicated on her relationship with these people as a leader, not as a, as like Clark who has a longstanding personal relationship with Raven. And it's understandable. Like I get why that is. And I assume that it's going to pay off eventually, but I think it is, it's causing some problems. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really want to like that go is, off on that tangent just put. yet. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it later. But I think one of the problems is this problem with like her and, and Raven being on Silence Island together and never having that moment. They never have that moment because Clark is not being Clark, the person who is friends with Raven. She's being Clark, the leader, who stands above the lab, looking down on it, pondering her, like, oh, the woes of being in charge of everyone, you know, of Roan coming in and being like, you were born for this. So, yeah. So, like, Clark is really very, very separate from everyone for those reasons. And again, it might be deliberate. If We'll get back to that. But anyway, so I would really, really love it if Clark came back to save Raven for no other reason than just, like, love of Raven. So we've had all these drones, right, on Silence Island, Science Island, um, and we had that remote control car with Murphy earlier, uh, like many episodes ago. And we had speculated then that um, eventually somebody might need to remotely pilot a spacecraft because Raven couldn't or whatever. And we have the red mannequin inside that suit, which is sort of like pointing to like Allie, so AI being inside the spacesuit. And so how about this? And, oh, and, and the other problem is that, you know, the rocket can make it to space, but it can't make it back. So a person who goes up there can't come back. So what if Raven figures out while she's working on the spacesuit that, in fact, nobody needs to go to space to make night blood? They could shoot up an unmanned rocket that would be remotely <gasps> piloted that could potentially dock with the Ark up there and use drones to synthesize the night blood and then shoot it back down to Earth. Oh my God. They could crash the rocket with the night blood because like the rocket can crash. It doesn't need to, you know, all you need is like a box to survive the crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They don't need to have any humans survive. So what if she figures out, hey, we can synthesize night blood. 
Oh my god. The problem was that I assumed that a human being need to, needed to be sent up to space and survive the trip there and back. But we don't need a human being. We just need... They just need the rocket. They just need the rocket yeah. and the drone technology. I love that idea. Oh my god. So, I think potentially... Uh, you know, it's possible that she won't realize this until Clark at all come to get her. Like, so, so the way that I, that I, that I see that, that this might happen is that, you know, she, I, I doubt Raven probably won't be in the next episode because it looks like it's the Battle Royale episode. So this seems like there's a fairly good chance that she, that we won't get um, back to Science Island until the episode after that. So, and the, the days are ticking down. So if it's 412 and everyone comes to save her, that's going to be very, very shortly before the death wave arrives. So, okay. So what if they show up and she's all ready to blast herself into space and they're like, no, no, Raven, we love you. Don't do that. And she's like, okay, but now you guys are stuck here. You know, you, they're like really far away from Polis. They can't make it back to the Munger right, in right. time. She's like, you guys have all come. Like, how are we going to survive? Uh, we can see, ride out the death wave down there, but how are we going to survive the radiation if we don't have a night blood, if we, if we can't do transfusions or like, or potentially if, you know, they taking in all the, the bone marrow from Clark would kill everyone. So Cl Raven figures out that in order to survive, they have to shoot the rocket up into space to, and remotely pilot it to make night blood so that those people who came to save Raven, who are now trapped together in that bunker can then survive. So then you'd have a group in the other bunker, uh, whoever's going to be in the bunker in Polis, and then you'd have another group riding it out on Becca's Island. Ew. See, I like this because it, it always felt like it made sense to me that in like however much of a time jump or whatever happens, that having the group fractured sort of seems like a gimme in terms of dramatic storytelling. Yes. Like who is trapped where with who in multiple locations. And so they know that they have at least one radiation-proof bunker, at least, yeah, at least to ride out the storm. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And I actually love the idea of space becoming involved in, you know, in the storyline in a way that's not quite so reductive as season four ends where season one started, which is like, everyone's in space. They found their way back to the Ark. They're living on a rocket right. ship. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, this is a way more interesting solution. And it also gets at, like, one of, one of the things that was on my increasingly lengthy list of, of Abby's hospitals where I'm sort of like, like, is this going to come back ever? Is this plot thread dropped for all time? Was wondering what the sort of step by step by step of how they got to Clark being in Nightblood felt so unwieldy and full of false turns if those things aren't going to come back. Yeah. You know, like, like why would they spend all that time being like, we got to get to space to make night blood to be like, whoops, we're a barrel short. We can't now. You know, like that would be like a really, right, really right. weird, long tangent to go on if that wasn't going to come back at some point to be a relevant issue. Yeah, because it felt because the like synthetic night blood that doesn't cost anyone's human bone marrow versus organic night blood that has this sort of like violent human medical trial component are two separate storylines that went in two very different directions. And so if they don't end up both being relevant, then the whole space thing is a completely nonsensical misdirect. Right, right. And and it only existed as sort of like the, the biomedical ethics and then Clark becoming a nightblood and then Luna hating everyone even <laughs> more. <laughs> Which I suspect will come up again next I week. I hope so. <laughs> But yeah, so that brings that back in. Yeah, but I like that. I really like that.
So, Arcadia. Arcadia. Another storyline that I think was just like, you know, emotionally, like, I think it really, really worked. I have some concerns about Jasper's storyline, but those are kind of like bigger picture concerns. But on a kind of just like, on like story level, on a like character level, I think the Arcadia storyline worked really well. And I also am just like fucking permanently heartbroken at this point over Harper. Oh my God. (laughs) Who's just, oh, poor Harper. I feel like the fact that Monty is there and Monty has a rover. Monty has left himself an evac. And I just, in my heart of hearts... I just believe that at the 11th hour, Harper's going to change her mind. And maybe this is just naive optimism, but I want so badly for her to make it. It would seem weird to me if they did that and then she didn't change her mind, you know? Because like, yeah, you know, unlike Jasper, this is a much more, not that it's an impulsive decision on her part, but it's more driven by the emotions of that moment. Right. I, I suspect that part of that story that's to come is, you know, as death becomes more and more real, not just Harper, but possibly some of those other people are going to have a realization that actually they don't want to die. You know, like at the that kind of like last second, the stories about people who've attempted suicide by jumping off the the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. You know, I remember reading recently, because I think they've, you know, it's it's like a problem that this is a common thing. There were places where people go out to to do that. And they were, I think they installed nets or something like that to try to prevent it. But, you know, I was reading an article about it and they said that that every person who has jumped and survived said that, like, in midair, they changed their mind, basically. Mm-hmm. When they realized they were about to die, they had a moment where they realized they didn't really want to die. Yeah, yeah. Or they realized that the, thing, the problem that they thought was insurmountable or, or unsolvable actually wasn't. I do think that, you know, a lot of the time, in in contrast with the situation like Raven's here, which is about a choice to die, she believes she is actually terminally ill. Even if if she gets into the bunker, she's still going to die. So she's making a choice about, you know, sort of taking the mode and time of her own death into her own hands and avoiding pain. And I think the motive for the people, the party people, is different, you know. And it's more emotional and it's more, there's more of a factor of impulsivity. Yeah. And and in suicide, I think for a lot of people, there is an element of impulsivity. And not like it's, it's just impulsive, but that, you know, it's like a thing where like in that moment you really, really, really want to do it. It seems like the only answer. And you're unable to sort of like get the space to realize that that is not an emotion that will last forever you know so like if you can get past that moment resist that impulse and get to the moment later on you might get that perspective but like part of the tragedy is that for a lot of people when they commit suicide they don't survive the moment where things seem impossible and where the impulse is is hard to resist you know what i mean right right yeah i kind of suspect and hope that part of that storyline is going to be when faced with the, you know, the realities of it that we're going to see Harper and maybe some other people kind of have that moment of like, oh, wait, shit. No, like, I, I actually don't want to die. You know, like, I don't want to suffer. I didn't want to face, you know, the difficulty and the pain, but I don't actually want to die. And it's totally understandable. You know, like, I think, like, we've all been there, especially if you've had struggles with with mental illness or, or I mean, like, just, just, just life, you know? Like, we've all had that moment where you're just so tired of fighting. You know, you're just so tired that not fighting seems so tempting. You know, you're just like, I just don't want to fight anymore. And if that means that I die, okay. I just don't have the energy to fight. And when Monty came in and she was laying lying on the bed and she's like, I couldn't pack, you know, I just like, 
I felt so much for Harper in that moment. Because, like, when you think about everything that Harper has been through, you know, like, in the first season, you know, fighting to survive with all the delinquents. In the second season, in Matt Weather, she got drilled. She's lost so much. And she's right. Like, when she says to Monty, every time we think that it's going to be okay, it's not. You know, something else goes wrong. Like, God, I do not, like, anybody in that universe who has that reaction to this. It's just, like, so understandable to reach that moment where you're like, every single time I start to think maybe it's going to be okay, it's not again. And I just cannot face, like, going through that cycle again. I It's totally yeah. understandable. Totally understandable. Oh, my God. And Chelsea was just, just heartbreaking. Like, you just felt her, like, exhaustion and fatigue. Oh, yeah. She's like, I just, I'm going to just, like, crawl into this bed and, like, whatever happens, happens. And if I get melted, fine. But, like, I can't pack up all of my stuff and, like, trek over to Polis and live in this bunker. Like, you know, she's right. Like, you know, something is going to go wrong. Something always goes wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think the important little moment in that scene between her and Monty, which was just so devastating... He reminds her that, like, the thing that she did that she's been torturing herself over, that this man died because she didn't stop to help him. And he says, like, it's not because you were a coward, it's because you wanted to live. Like, he's reminding her, when push comes to shove, like, in these moments of, like, true life or death crisis, Harper has that thing. Harper has that life instinct, you know? And she can't feel it right now, but, like... You know, the reason that she's survived as long as she has when so many other people that came down with them didn't make it is because she is a fighter. And right now she can't remember why she's fighting or what the point is. But I'm hoping that having him there, having Monty stay, not just because it's a way of sort of signaling like, hey, at least some of these people are going to get out because Monty brought the car. But just like as a as someone to remind her that she's stronger than she feels right now in this moment, I think is so important. Yeah, yeah. You could almost say that, you know, if there's a reason they're still alive when so many others have died, <laughs> Monty is willing to wait for it and Harper is not. <laughs> a slow Thank you, clap. thank you. Slow clap for the Hamilton reference. I'm going to unplug my microphone and walk away. It's all downhill from here. (laughs) Oh, we haven't had a Hamilton reference in so long. I know, it's so long. I could not let that one pass me by. No, that was good. That was really good. I walked right into it. I did not even see it coming. (laughs) Now I don't remember what I was going to say. (laughs) I had like an actual serious thing to say besides the Hamilton reference, but then I got totally derailed. Uh, <laughs> worth it. You know, I really, I love that he pointed out that, you know, like she still has that survival instinct deep inside her. You know, there's something in there that's that'll fight for her to live. And also just like that what she did with, in the Black Rain wasn't bad. It was just human. You know, it was right, like, it doesn't make right. you a bad person. It just means like that instinct deep inside that keeps you alive is still there. You know, like that's just... The reason why we persist as a species. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a kick to the heart when Monty told her that she was being a coward now for not fighting. Like, that uh, one really, really hurt. I know. I, it bugged me a little bit because just, you know, like, having been, having been suicidal myself, you know, and having struggled with depression and, like, those kinds of thoughts. Like, I've been where Harper is. I've had those, those 
days and weeks where I thought like, what's the point of continuing to fight when it always just circles back around to this again? Right. Last time I thought I did this and I thought it was the last time I had to do it. Now I'm doing it again. And like, it's so hard to fight it. Why am I even fighting it? You know, like I've had those sort of moments. And so, you know, I, I got really hopeful when Monty said to her, you know, I don't think you're a coward for having for what you did with Lewis. That did make you a coward because you, you fought to survive. And I was hoping that he would say, like, that instinct is still inside of you. You know, please still fight to survive. And so when he said she was a coward now for sort of not choosing to fight, that really kind of hurt me, you know, a little like, yeah, I just kind of thought about like when I was in that state, what it would have done to me to hear someone I love say that to me. Yeah, that would have been awful. I would have just given up because it's so hard to believe that you're being brave by surviving, you know, and you are like in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. in that sort yeah. of situation, like just laying on your bed and continuing to breathe is an act. Yeah. Of oh, incredible yeah. Bravery. Did you read that article? It was on the establishment. I think I shared it on Twitter. I, I might have posted it on Facebook. My friend Anne Terriot, who writes for the establishment, she's she's dealing with a lot of very, very serious kind of depression and wellness issues right now. And basically it was sort of about the idea that like, we have this kind of cultural narrative for the idea that suicide is something that is selfish. And what we don't talk about enough, the flip side of it is like, when you are in that place that every day waking up and choosing to stay alive is like the most incredibly powerfully selfless, generous thing that you can do because you're not really able in that moment to do it for yourself. You're doing it for everyone else around you. And that that side of it, like the sort of Herculean effort and like the generosity that that takes when you're like, okay, I can't like, like I can't think about myself right now, but I'm thinking about like my kid. Yeah. 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 My mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking of that when I was watching the Harper Monty scene and and feeling like I think we're meant to see that like he was being really harsh and not understanding yeah, her and yeah. the part and the part of him staying was as an apology for like realizing what he said was incredibly shitty. Like yeah. he said. Like hitting her right in her sore spot, you know. But I I think there's something really interesting in that like this is a piece of them that Monty just does not understand. Like, he cannot understand Jasper. He cannot understand Harper. He cannot understand Jaha and Bellamy being willing to let them make this choice. Like, Monty is one of those people, and I think this is sort of an interesting slice of the depression story to kind of show, too, is, like, a person who's never been in that place, who, who had their own grief and trauma like we saw Monty go through and handled it in a very different way. Like, it just, it does not feel the same for him. Yeah. Monty's never stopped feeling like life in and of itself and, and his own life is worth living, is worth fighting for. He, I think he doesn't mean to be unempathetic, but he can't really see where they're at or why they're making this choice. So it makes him accidentally, like, horribly cruel because he doesn't really have the capacity to, like, sit where Harper is sitting and understand why she feels what she feels because he's been in this same situation. And he's he's the friend who's like, well, I went through this shit and I'm not depressed. Why can't you get out of bed? You know, and I think, like, because we love Monty and we know that he never means to be, like, cruel or malicious. He's a moral compass in so many situations. But I like that they let him be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because his perspective is relatable too, but it isn't compassionate or kind. It's like, I don't understand why all of your brains don't work like my brain is working right now. 
all you had to do, Harper, was pack your bag and go. Why is this so hard? And it's like everyone who's been in Harper's position knows what it's like to be like, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know why I can't get out of bed. I don't know why I can't do this. You know, like, I don't know why this is so easy for you and so difficult for me. I, I mean, I, and I really relate to that because that's something, you know, like in my relationship, like my husband has never been suicidal. You know, like he's never had those thoughts. So he, he like, when I've talked about them, he's like, he he can't understand them. You know, he's like, he's just like, does, it's just like, does not compute. And, and like, he's been with me through depression and stuff like that. And it's always really, it took us a long time. It took us, it took him a long time to understand what's happening to me. It took him a long time to understand, like, why I can't get off the couch and just do right, simple right. things when I'm in that state. And it took him also a long time to learn how to cope with that like it is really hard and really frustrating if your partner when your partner is suffering that kind of thing you know and and like having compassion for that is hard that just took time and like talking and learning and all that kind of stuff like it's it's not it's not automatic you know and and for people who haven't gone through it it really is just like in a lot of ways incomprehensible yeah you know and I think that Monty feeling like like there has to be Something that he can do to fix what's happening with Harper. There's going to be something he can do or say to convince Jasper that he's wrong. These are problems that come up a lot when you have somebody that has like a Monty logic brain. Yeah. Like if I just explain to you using these facts. Your conclusion that because things are like this right now means there's there's no hope and there's no point in doing anything is illogical. And if I just explain that to you, you'll see that and be like, oh yeah, of course. Which is like not how depression works you know like when you're in that state you're like yeah i I understand that but also like seems fake you know like (laughs) right right yeah like i hear the words that you're saying i don't really believe them and it also isn't compassionate because it isn't taking into account that at this point jasper in particular but also harper like are just not processing information the same way that he's processing information he can't understand it's like why are you not all panicked and hurried to get out of here before you die because they don't care well and and like in just that that piece of it he cannot understand like he straight up cannot understand it which which like honestly is I, i don't blame anybody for not being able to understand that. Because, like, again, like... No, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've yeah. never been suicidal, if you've never thought to yourself that ceasing to exist is, like, a logical and possibly the best solution, like, that is a truly bizarre thing to think. And and if you, if you don't have that impulse, and if you have that, like, strong sort of survival instinct, then, like, going straight to, like, well, fuck it, I might as well just die... Of course it makes no sense. Like, of course you'd be horrified. Like, why would anybody think, you know, like, I don't blame anybody who doesn't understand it. You know, once you've been in it, of course you understand it. But like, of course Monty doesn't get it, you know? (laughs) Right, right. I don't blame Monty for not getting it. That line really hurt. I I do think you're right. It was meant to be Monty not getting it. We aren't meant to take that as meaning that Harper is a coward for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it like hit me where it hurt, but that's a pretty realistic depiction of like the way that that kind of psychological emotional situation can impact a relationship in a really really painful way you know and it and it hurts both people very deeply so yeah that was painful to watch but (laughs) but you know like emotionally rang true I like Monty and Harper like I like them both a lot individually I think the relationship's been really been really sweet and I was sort of waiting to see like where if at any point it was going to really deeply tie into 
big plot or big themes. And I think that we found it. I yeah. think this is the moment. I think so too. It's having somebody, somebody that we know and that we care about deeply besides Riley, you know, <laughs> in the bunker with Jasper. Somebody who who is, you know, in this situation that Jasper has created, but isn't actually in the same mental place that Jasper is in. Well, like Jasper's pretty intractable, you know, and and he has once again, kind of like he did in Matt Weather, he sort of assumed his position as like kid leader. But the journey that he's gone on, Harper's not in the same place. Yeah. And so I think that having Monty stay around, having the chance for, I think, hopefully some some more substantial Jasper and Monty reconciliation, you know, I think is going to be really important. But I, I think that having, you know, showing us like there's a lot of different roads that led all these different people here. And Jasper's kind of in his own He's not really like the test case. Yeah. You know, like he's not really the barometer by which you can judge sort of why everyone else made this choice because he's there due to like, you know, sort of extreme suffering and trauma and PTSD that has been making him, you know, think these thoughts for a while. And I think a lot of the rest of them were kind of just like, you know, I'd rather die than live in the bunker, you know, or like Harper, like I'm just kind of like, I'm tired of fighting. We're going to die anyway. Like, let's just sort of get it over with. We got the reiteration again of the you can't save someone who doesn't want to be saved line that like I think five different people at this point have said <laughs> about five different characters and then like it was Jawhawk came up in the rotation and he got it today. <laughs> so I guess to what makes me wonder about that is what the transition moment is going to be where I think, you know, like Harper is going to decide that she does want to live and they are going to get out of there and then sort of like how like what spurs that decision you know I think it could be really horrible and also potentially like a realistic thing for the show to do if like you know they've got one rover they've got an evac for as many people as can fit in one rover and if the closer the death wave comes like if more people start changing their mind and there isn't enough room that would pay off jasper and monty going after clark for the list earlier in the season if they have to decide yeah. who they're gonna who's gonna get in that yeah. over and get out like a little miniaturized version of the lifeboats kind of yeah. thing where like you know all of a sudden you have 20 people who are like i've changed my mind i you know i don't actually really want to die and monty's like all right we can take six yeah yeah i could definitely see it going that way and that would make a lot of sense with monty's arc you know with clark and him sort of like questioning leadership or moral decisions about you know like choosing who lives and who dies i mean that would pay off that line that he throws at clark earlier the season so that would make sense. I also sort of, because I still think that Jasper's going to die. I wouldn't be surprised if like that situation, like I, what I would hope is that that would maybe give Jasper an opportunity for like a semi-hero's death in that, you know. He stays he behind and let somebody else take his spot. Yeah, yeah. like, and especially if they're, if, you know, like if somebody needs to do something in order to, you know, like make it possible for them to get out of there and he sort of sacrifices himself to do that. I, I definitely could see that happening as a way that Jasper winds up dying. And I hope it would be something like that and not just him being like, eh, I'll just stay here. But <laughs> if Jasper stays behind so Harper can take his spot, you know, like because he wants Monty to have somebody with him. Yeah. That would give Jasper some agency that would recenter him as being somebody who in his final act is deeply motivated by relationships and specifically by his love of Monty, which is something that I was hoping was going to sort of be a stronger kind of driving 
yeah, force in this season than yeah, it has been. Yeah. I, I think we're all sort of resigned at this point to like Jasper's probably going to be one of the characters that dies. So like if we accept that that's a given, how to do it in a way where he like retains some agency that doesn't feel like it's glorifying these kind of self-destructive hedonistic impulses that lets Jasper be Jasper and that doesn't feel like it's telling this really sort of fatalistic story about like, you know, just sort of like lying back and letting doom take you. Yeah. And I think, you know, if he and Monty end up in a position where they have to do sort of a mini version of Clark's List and if sort of at the 11th hour, Jasper sacrifices himself so Harper can live. Like... It- There's never going to be a version of a storyline where Jasper dies and I'm okay with it, given how that undercuts the growth they gave him in season three. I agree. And also, I'm just like, I'm I'm also pretty unsatisfied with what they have done with Jasper this season. You know, and it's possible that his last couple episodes will get, like, great Jasper stuff, you know, and that that would be nice. Yeah. I, I don't know. Jasper. I know. Yeah. He's been, like, mostly just sort of, like, macabre comic relief and yeah and like i mean my friend emily who's like who just adores jasper you know she's messaging me about this today and she's just like she's like i I was left really cold by jasper and monty's interactions in this episode and especially like like jasper's reaction to monty showing up at the end She's like, I just, you know, I just didn't feel anything. There wasn't anything there. And she's like, that makes me so sad. You know, like, I I felt like that should have been this, like, really huge cathartic moment. You know, like, it should have meant something so much more than it seemed to me. Like, Jasper's just like, hey, cool, whatever. You know, like, are you staying? No, blah, that's what... Cool, bro. Like, I mean, it could have been anybody, you know? Like, Jasper didn't yeah, react to yeah. Monty any differently than it seemed like he would have reacted to Riley. So that part of it is just, like, really unsatisfying. Yeah. Like, Jasper's been really static all season. Like, he hasn't really progressed emotionally. They haven't dealt with his mental state in any kind of, like, sustained or, or deep way yeah. since, like, the first episode, really. So that's really disappointing, too. Yeah. One of my beefs with this episode is that, like, apart from just the things within this episode that didn't work, which we'll get to in a second, my kind of big picture macro frustration with it is that I feel like, in a lot of ways, this was the episode for multiple storylines where it began to become clear that, like, there's no way out of this arc that you're building that I'm going to find satisfying. Yeah. There was a handful of different places where I spotted it, and I really feel like Jasper was one of them, where it's like, you know, with four episodes left before the end of the season, we're out of time for this to take a really surprising turn that redeems everything that has happened before that hasn't worked. There were a lot of other pieces of that storyline besides Jasper, like, that I also really liked and hooked into. I loved the sort of very... Like, very brief kind of drive-by reminders that, like, Nyla is still around. You know, every time the the camera would cut to, like, Nyla in the background watching something happen, that beautiful little sad goodbye moment between her and Harper. They must be keeping her around because she's going to become plot-relevant. Yeah, yeah. 
they keep establishing that she's there and that she's going to the bunker to going to Polis. So I think she's got to be, there's got to be a reason for that. Like she's, there's yeah, so she's something's going to happen. Yeah. But just like, as like her as a person, just sort of being like being around and so like empathetic and warm. I was just like, I'm just really, I was, it was a lovely little, just like very sort of subtle little touches of like Nyla's the friend that you need in moments like this. Uh huh. Yes. And I loved, I mean like Bellamy didn't do a ton in this episode, but I think he had a lot of like really kind of lovely character moments. I mean that the, the goodbye between him and Harper and Jasper was just like oh, heartbreaking. God. Like, Oh my God. Bob Morley in his fucking face, you know, like it's just so, you know, just, just like the tears in his eyes and he's trying to keep it together. And like, I thought that was just like a, a beautifully done scene, you know, that, that goodbye moment. And it was tense, you know, there's like sort of undercurrent of tension where you can tell that Bellamy is a little bit angry, you know, that Jasper's staying, I think maybe, you know, and Jasper said, you can stay. He's like, I'm not a quitter. You know, I think it's like, it's a joke, but I think it's also kind of telling you like, kind of like where he's at, but you know, but he still has that sort of. You can see how much it affects him to be losing these two people, you know, and like Harper and Jasper are two of the original, you know, the OG delinquents. Yeah. And and like two of the kids that he's been trying to do everything he p- can possibly do the entire time on the ground to keep them alive. Well, you know, after episode three, when Bellamy stopped wanting to kill Jasper. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, from that point forward. Yeah. (laughs) Like he, you know, all of season two, he spent running around in Mount Weather, getting drained and like crawling through vents, trying to keep them alive, you know? And so, so I thought it was like subtle, but very nicely done to kind of remind you like how much it takes for Bellamy to be able to, I mean, like, I think that's one of those things where it's like, so Bellamy doesn't do much this episode, but we get a lot of little moments that give us a lot of information about where Bellamy is at as a character now. The reaffirmation at the beginning, the like, there was no hope, now there's hope. I thought that was, it's a kind of like a flippant, like, okay, never mind, you know, like, he's back on team survival now. It's a little too easy. Yeah, it wasn't quite satisfactory as a kind of like, you know, we, like Bellamy ended the last episode seeming to be going into this really dark sort of like, fuck it, party place and to have him come back and be like, well, never mind. You know, like I had my fun and. Yeah, we didn't get any closure Yeah, no, on we that. got no closure. You know, it's like, he's sort of. The last episode ended with him, you know, with uh, Brie, the girl, you know, like hitting on him and him seeming to decide to kind of go with it. So inadvertently, I think like, what it seems to have happened is that Bellamy just really needed to like have a few orgasms. Like he really right, right. needed to get laid. <laughs> and like once he got laid, he's like, oh man, I feel yeah. so much better. Like I was really like, oh, this The whole world is like a different like, place now. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm purged, you know, like I'm raring to go You're now. Back in the game, survive. yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, as I, not at all what they intended, but it sort of is kind of accidentally how it comes I know, like, I had that bit. thought too. Yeah, I was like, wow, all right, all right. <laughs> it's like, wow. I mean, like, um, that's, so, you know. that's fair. Like, yeah. <laughs> A little bit of sex uh, does wonders for Bellamy, it turns out. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Fixes all the problems. So if I have any complaints about about Bellamy in this episode, it's that that was a little too, like, anyway, whatever, you know, like, hand wave that away. But I think, like, the rest of it is, you know, I think it was a kind of a nice that within an episode where Bellamy doesn't do a lot in terms of plot, we still sort of, like, it was an opportunity for him to kind of get an episode where, like, it was about sort of, I think, maybe kind of reestablishing a new baseline for Bellamy. Because, like, the one thing that the last episode did with Bellamy with, you know, his interactions with Jasper... It's not like that didn't do anything because, like, his trip into the woods with Jasper and coming back, like, 
that was, I think, the kind of final permission that he got from Jasper to let go of his guilt for what he's done. He was sort of purged in that sense as well. So I think that was the kind of closure of that what had been that previous sort of emotional arc. So it was nice to get a, an episode like this where it was sort of like we got to pause with Bellamy and, and establish his new baseline, which is like he's really learned. I, I think he, he has actually like sort of internalized a new understanding of like what he can control and what he has to let go of, you know? So like we sort of pause, like the point of this, I think for Bellamy was to pause and say like, Bellamy now understands like what you can't save anyone, people, someone who doesn't want to be saved means like he gets what that means. And it doesn't just mean like sometimes you are physically incapable of saving people and that's not, you know, and you have to accept it. It also means that like, other people get to make choices for right, themselves right. that you don't get to, you know, like prevent them from making and that you are not responsible for, you know? So I think this is Bellamy sort of learning that new sense of responsibility. And it kind of puts into a new light that line that we got from him. Another one of those like bang you over the headlines that we got a bunch of times at the beginning of the season. We save who we can save today. I think that the right, meaning right. of that has shifted for Bellamy so that we save who we can save today, you know, also means like who we can save is slightly different. It's not just who we are like have the the physical capacity to save in this moment but also like we save you know who wants to be saved right although it, again it is dark you know and i think like there's room for discussion in terms of when you're dealing with like when the issue is that it's like these are a bunch of people who are who are suicidal who are who are making a, a arguably not fully rational choice to die i think there's a discussion to be had about interventions in those moments right 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 and uh and it's sort of like really truly meta level outside of the show but I think within the show I do I did like that Bellamy kind of became the voice for like look they have made a choice and they're enforcing it and we don't actually have the right to override their free will like Allie did in order to force them to come with us when they don't want to well and that's what what I really liked about Bellamy in this episode even though like you said there was not very much of it was I really really liked the juxtaposition of Bellamy and Jaha yes yes that was really interesting Jaha was really interesting in this episode speaking of people who didn't have a lot to do but you sort of checked in with his kind of new baseline there's been a, a sort of like retconned super useful hero job <laughs> all this right. season. And this episode felt like in an interesting way, partway sort of a return to form. Like he still, he gets his big hero moment. Like, you know, like I found the bunker. <laughs> I said I was going to save you and I saved you. We will rise. I love that he got that moment and also we got to see everyone be totally unimpressed with it. You know, like I thought that was yeah, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. It was like wrong crowd <laughs> Thelonious. <laughs> Yes. Read the room. But so he got his like sort of season four Jaha, the useful Jaha, the mystic saying culty things. We ourselves must walk the path. We will rise. Like, uh, fine. Okay, sure. <laughs> but we also got a nice little ping of like ruthless dictatorial. I will save you if I have to drag you out kicking and screaming by the hair. Fascist arc dictator Jaha when he says like participation is not optional yeah like, you are fucking yeah. coming you have no agency you have no that's choice that's the Jaha who convinced Ali to override free will he wants to gas them his commitment to making sure that all his people survive extends to forcibly tranquilizing them and I guess just like knocking them out and throwing them in the back of a van driving them to Polis. which is another parallel with Clark yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Monomaniacal, uh, you know, I, I will save everyone whether they want me to save them or not, and I will 
override their free will in order to do it. Yeah. yeah. And I love, yeah. and especially with the parallel with Clark, actually, now that I think about it, but even without it, I love that Bellamy is the one who convinces him that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And Monty being sort of more or less on, like, like slightly less violent, but on Team Jaha, like, on Team force people to realize they're making the wrong decision. Like, they don't want anyone to get hurt. But Monty is also like, yeah, let's drag him out of there. This is crazy, you know? And so I think to hear yeah. Bellamy say, you know, I think when Monty thinks he's sort of playing the trump card, when he's like, like, what would you do if Octavia was in there? And Bellamy's like, I'd say goodbye. Like, that's a huge moment. Yes, yes. It's a huge moment for Bellamy. Like, not just in terms of his relationship with who's actually in that room, but it tells us something enormous about Octavia. That tells us something has, something really deep and fundamental has changed in Bellamy since the episode where he was sitting in that rover in the black rain. Yeah. Right, willing yeah. to like yeah. kill himself to save people because who are who are a proxy for saving Octavia. So like so we know how profoundly Bellamy has changed and how much he's taken to heart this understanding that he cannot personally control every person's decisions and their survival. When he says, like, if Octavia was in there saying I'm going to die, he would say, like, at least I get to say goodbye instead of being like, I'd be fucking dragging her out by her hair, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure that's going to pay off next week when Octavia is choosing to fight, you know, and and he doesn't try to stop her. Yeah, exactly. Bellamy didn't move the plot this episode, but we needed this episode to sort of pause and give us these moments to tell us, like, all right. This is Bellamy, you know, like 4.0. This is like Bellamy having moved through all the baggage from last season and from like every, you know, all of the seasons and has like sort of now synthesized it or, or, you know, worked through it and he's in in a new place. He has a new relationship with these issues. And I thought that was actually like very elegantly done. Yeah. The moment with the Octavia line from Monty was the most kind of like... Obvious, but again, that was also like totally organically character driven. Like, of course, Monty knows that Octavia is the everybody knows that Octavia is the the trump card, you know. So of course he tries to play the yeah, trump card. Yeah. But everything else, I think, was very very subtle. So I I thought it was great. I th- I did too. Yeah, I absolutely did. I, I'm happy with the way that that kind of establishes his emotional development and sets him up for you know for new stuff with Octavia next episode, and then. You know, I'm still hopeful that, like, his relationship with Echo is going to be plot relevant to the, like, grounder conflict coming up. And I also think, like, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that little hint, and I hadn't thought about this before, but the the fact that we have Jaha as the kind of, like, leader, you know, saying, like, all right, here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. And that we're reminded, like, Bellamy is the guy who can, you know, convince people. Like, he's good at talking people into changing their minds and taking a different tack. And that it's Jaha who has, like, such strong kind of leadership parallels with Clark. That kind of feels like the sort of, like, subtle setup that makes me hopeful that that aspect of Bellamy's kind of leadership is also going to be relevant in upcoming episodes. So hopefully, hopefully. I think so, yeah. Okay, so, um, brief pit stop to talk about how fucking also infuriating it is that, once again, Kane and Abby for purely plot reasons, decided to make the absolute stupidest possible decision to keep a political secret that they could possibly, like, impossibly stupid. The magnitude (laughs) of my fury. Like, I okay, so first of all, first of all, (laughs) 
first of all. <laughs> if there's one thing that we've actually learned about these characters over the course of the show, they're both actually really good at scheming. Yes! So, like, <laughs> if actual schemery had to happen, Abby Slytherin Griffin, who spent all of season one committing crimes under Kane's nose, or Kane, who had the whole, like, secret Pike Arcadia uprising underneath Pike's nose, why they were so dumb. I mean, it was like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It's like, <laughs> oh, like, Kane walks in like, oh, hello, Roan. Everyone stand right there. Don't move. The... I'm all alone for reasons. I was like, what are you doing? Who, who is this dumbass? And what has he done with my boyfriend, Marcus Kane, who's so much smarter than this? And then Abby being like, Clark, I've waited until just now for plot reasons to tell you this incredibly enormous thing that you should have known a really long time ago that in any sane world, Kane gets on the radio, he's like, good news, I made a deal with with Tree Crew. And then Abby's like, oh, fuck, we've got to deal with Asgata. It's like, all right, well, bring in Clark and Roan and I'll get Indra. Let's figure this all right. out. Like, why, why was that not the very first conversation that happened? And why did Abby save it until, like... Literally the second before, like, I was just like, these people are, they're not this stupid. And I get, I get really indignant when somebody has to be criminally stupid for plot reasons. And they're like, oh, well, just how the adults do it. You know, I like, it just like, yeah. like that, that happens, gets under my skin. Like, that happens I, to Abby an unfortunate amount. Yeah. She gets that more than anyone. It's yeah. Like, but, but yeah. Oh yeah. But like that, that, that. The part where they kept a secret is like it's three oh four all over again. Where like the entire plot of three oh yeah is, is like runs on people finding something out that Abby and and uh, Kane hadn't told them, and Abby and Kane being like uh the uh no we were totally gonna tell you guys. It's like why the fuck didn't you tell them? There is z- absolutely right. zero reason for you to keep that a secret. Except that if you hadn't kept it a secret, the plot wouldn't work, which is not a good reason. Right. <laughs> No, well, and especially because Abby and Rowan have been working together at Science Island for yeah. however the fuck many weeks, and Kane and like Kane was already on thin ice with Rowan because of the last dumb secret the plot <laughs> made him keep, you know. So like, so why? Like it just it 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 is it's ap- apart from just being incredibly bad politics. So like yeah, so 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 it bugs me for multiple reasons. It bugs me because it's it's. It's a dumb thing for anyone to do. It bugs me when the show makes the adults the idiots because then everyone is like, oh my God, fuck Abby. And I'm like, this is really more a problem of the writing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, Let's not blame the characters for questionable right, writing right. choices. <laughs> They're not actually human beings who make choices. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, But I also feel like the weirdest part of this to me was why it had to be Abby of all people. And in that moment, like, why had it never occurred to anyone else before? Like, why didn't why didn't Clark think to give a shit about Trey Crew? You know? Like, right. why? Clark, for someone who has, like, spent half the season roaming around being like, no, we have to save everyone, we have to save everyone, she's remarkably blasé about the fact that she's made a deal that she apparently intends to stick to to save only one or, like, two groups of people. Well, and, like, and the thing that I don't, like, the, the the weirdest thing about it to me is, like, it's part of this this very bizarre thing that's been happening left and right, where this show, all this whole season, has been simultaneously deifying and invalidating Lexa. 
Yes, so like, yes. like every everything everyone says about Lexa, the dialogue they deliver when they're facing the camera <laughs> is like, Lexa was this great leader. Lexa was the most important person in Clark's life. Lexa was Clark's great love. Clark is, is like, she's still a part of you. She taught Clark how to be a leader. Like all of this great stuff. But then what the story actually does is like make Clark visibly not give a shit about Lexa's clan. Like Tree Crew is Lexa's people. And so the fact that Abby has to tell her, we have to save Tree Crew, and the only reason for it is because Kane and Indra made a deal, that makes saving Tree Crew about Indra and Kane and, like, the politics deal that they made, and not about Clark wanting Lexa's people to live because she loved Lexa. Like, so that didn't make sense to me. And And it also felt like this weird thing happening where, like, how somehow suddenly the only person we see Clark have a real relationship now is Roan. Which is which is a version of the Octavia and Ilian problem. You know, exactly. Like, and, I, yeah. and I like Roan. And obviously, obviously I like, we, we really know like Roan, Roan a lot yeah. more than we know Ilian. And he's much more consistently written and he's been around more. And so, so it's like in terms of him as a character being, you know, like he's less of a problem. But, but he's still basically a new character in this season and he's like superseded like you said all of basically all of Clark's like established relationships right when she was up in the office in in Becca's lab looking down you know like sort of doubting herself Abby doesn't come to talk to her you know like Raven doesn't come to talk to her Roan comes to talk to her so yeah it's exactly the same as when she was sequestered in Polis last season except that she does occasionally get moments with other characters but she's still really sharing a dual leadership storyline with only Rowan. Yeah, basically. So like she's she's not Rowan has has effectively in a lot of ways replaced the role of Raven, replaced Abby, replaced Bellamy yeah, even yeah. kind of because they've been separated for so long. The storyline they're in is the two of them together and occasionally other people sort of wander in and out of it, but the story is really about Clark and Rowan, Clark and Rowan, Clark and Rowan and which, which, like again, like, like, and like, and I really like Rowan. I think Zach McGowan's fantastic. yeah, and they and, and they I, have and, great, but I like together, they have you know, great like, chemistry. Yeah. But I, what I kept thinking, like the the little moment in the bunker where like uh, Rowan and Indra are kind of going head to head. I remember my clearest thought in the moment was, these are such fucking fantastic characters and fucking fantastic actors, and they deserve such a more coherent storyline. Yeah. Yeah. All my life, I've been waiting for sparks to fly on my television, like letting Roan and Indra fucking finally just go at it. And it was wasted. Yeah. They are so charismatic, and, and we love these, we, like, these, their characters are great, and they represent these two intransigent opposing forces. Like, there's so much potential in just that little 10 seconds of, like, Roan versus Indra, you know, like, spatting on screen. And it was wasted because it's like it's totally divorced from everything else that's happening. And I don't understand why the story decided we no longer care about Tree Crew. And Abby had to remind her like, hey, hey, remember Tree Crew? Our first allies, your first friends on the ground, the clan of all of your closest grounder friends like Lincoln and Lexa and people you care about a lot. Are you literally saying that you're going to let them die because you and Rowan are buddies? Like, I don't understand why it didn't occur to Clark 
much earlier than this and why Abby had to tell her. Well, and even even setting aside Clark's special relationship with Triku, she's supposed to have transcended tribalism, right? Like, so it shouldn't matter that it's Triku because it's not about right. tribes, but trying to save everyone, trying to save humanity. But again, like, she fucking, she says that and people say to her, you've transcended tribalism like Lexa, but then she doesn't act like it because she's just sort of like, but I made a deal with Roan, so fuck everyone else. Is like, basically, until Abby's like, uh, no, we have to deal with Tree Crew. You know, like, so, yeah. so it's, it just, it doesn't, it's not actually consistent, you know, and it, and it comes out in these moments that yeah. gets really frustrating. And like, I think, so, so to dig into like, I, I, the, the Polis story in this episode is another one that just like, <sighs> I'm yeah. just like nothing but like frustrated and not like it didn't work for me and and it's it didn't work for me and like I have a harder time articulating exactly what was wrong what didn't quite hit but I think there and so I think there's a bunch of different factors one of them is definitely that again we have Clark, who is like solely and completely in leader Clark mode, not in person Clark mode. Right. Who is in a storyline like basically, you know, only with Roan, pretty much. And not, you know, not with Bellamy or Abby or, you know, so it's like totally about Clark as the leader. Clark is sort of like, at this point in this, in this season, she's slipped back into the problem that Clark had in season three, where it's been so long since Clark has been emotionally available to us as a character. Like, I don't know where she's at anymore. You know, like, I yeah, know yeah. that Clark wants to save humanity. I know she wants to save her people. I know how Clark feels about giant abstractions. I don't really know where she's at as a human being with a mind and a heart. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. That is a humongous problem. For a protagonist. And I think this is why people feel like, you know, talking to people on like Twitter and stuff like that. I, you know, like a lot of things, something that I hear a lot of people say is like, they don't understand what Clark's story is. Like, what is Clark's storyline? Where is it going? What's Clark's character arc? I think the reason is that Clark's storyline and her character arc are about her leadership. It's about her being the chosen one leader thing. You know, you're born to this transcending tribalism. She's the only one, you know, Roan says to her, you're the only one who can convince mortal enemies to live together, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then the other part of it is, um, of course, like the Jaha parallels. You know, so Jaha, we got that stuff at the very beginning of the season where Jaha said, you know, these choices wear you down and they isolate you, you know, and, and like, so we see her getting more and more isolated. So insofar as Clark has a storyline, has a character arc, it seems to be about that. But the reason why I think that that doesn't register as being like a character arc is because we don't have access. If there is an emotional development or emotional arc to that for Clark, we don't really get to see that. And it's been so long since we've seen that. And, and I think it's because she hasn't been with characters where she can have those moments. We, we, because she's, most of her interactions are with Roan or, or they're about leadership. You know, she had an emotional sort of scene with Murphy, but he was yelling at her about her leadership choices. You know, when people talk to her about Lexa, they're talking to her about Lexa as this great leader where Clark is like that great leader too. They're not talking to her about her feelings about Lexa. Even Nyla didn't, really. She talked to her about leadership you know so yeah. like no one's asking like hey clark are you okay right. they're, or, they're like or, you are the same kind of leader that lexa was and it's yeah it's all about like it's sort of a political and, and going the other direction 
we don't ever, like, we never get a chance to see Clark express or react to emotional an emotional connection she has to another individual person. Again, what we know that she cares about, that she's focused on, and this is like, I mean, like, part of this is like, you know, Clark is the big picture leader, you know, like, she's the one who sees the whole thing. She's the one who's has her head above the clouds where nobody else does, and she's able to see, like, the full landscape, whatever. But what that means is that the thing that Clark cares about primarily that we're told over and over again is abstractions. Everybody. Humanity. Who do you want to save? I don't want to just save these people. I want to save humanity. Well, that's great and lofty, but it's also an abstraction, you know, and it makes her separate from, from you know, the other characters. It makes her, like, you cannot empathize with an abstraction, you know? Yeah. So it's really hard to empathize with Clark because it's really hard to empathize with humanity as a just a general sort of thing like we don't we don't psychologically identify with mass groups of people or sort of theoretical abstractions we identify with individuals you know and so I I think that's the thing that's that's the problem and like that is a choice that they've made and I do think that like with with the kind of like parallels with Jahan stuff like that I do suspect and and what we talked about before with like uh, where Raven stuff is going to I do suspect that that will probably come back around in some form or another um, in the last four episodes, and it might pay off. And, like, again, it's kind of like, it's the same thing with the Octavia thing, although it's not quite as, I'm not, like, infuriated with Clark. I'm just sort of, like, low-key frustrated. Um, same thing with Octavia, where it's like, if she has a killer for last four episodes where this stuff really pays off, I'll be very happy. But it doesn't remove the fact that I think there's a serious problem in terms of just, like, pacing of her character and the kind of, like, episode-to-episode writing of her through much of the season and from last season yeah. that is just, like, not really... It's just not really working. And it's going on for a longer time than I think... Um, like, you know, you can ask for a certain amount of patience from your audience, but I think it's kind of like they're really pushing that. I totally agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and I think... I think one of the things that makes it particularly frustrating to watch is that in the past when, and I, and I think the season three Grounder Massacre being the one noticeable exception, which we talked about before, but in the past when when we've been dealing with somebody either trying to save a mass group of people or causing the death of a mass group of people, the show has locked us in on a couple of people as as faces for that and we've watched the characters that we care about, you know, often Clark sort of the abstraction becomes humanized. And yeah. so it can be as little it can be as little as like Tor Lemkin, the dad with the barrette mm-hmm. in the culling, mm-hmm. you know, or or it can be as big as all of the different characters that we meet in Mount Weather who we empathize and care about and believe to be good people and knowing that they also, in addition to Cage and Dante Wallace, are going to die when things get irradiated. Mm-hmm. Like, not just Maya and Maya's family, but the little kids. Like, so so we get little bits and pieces. We have, we have Bellamy talking to a child whose dad he's just killed. And we have Maya in Jasper's arms. And we have, you know, Bellamy on the radio saying, like, these people tried to help us. And so we don't have to meet every single human being in Mount Weather. And we can talk about Mount Weather in, like, a big-picture macro sense with a really nuanced complex understanding of what Mount Weather means to people like Clark and Bellamy and to Jasper and to, you know, and to everyone who is chained up in there and to the kids who are inside. And I think that we've talked about, you know, just to death, but the big issue, of course, with the Grounder Massacre was that we got 
We got none of that. But we did with the City of Light. You know, the idea of if you die in the City of Light, you die in real life. And of sort of the stakes of they have this sort of zombie army that they can't just kill them because it's Imori and Jackson and Kane and, you know, and people who mean something to them and Jaha, you know. And so I think where... I think where the ambition of making the arc of season four, saving literally all of humanity, I think where that's become a problem is that we haven't had those moments where Clark has to face, if she fails, her mom dies. Yes. If she fails, Bellamy dies. If she fails, all the delinquents die. We got that with the list. You know, I think we got that moment where she was making the list and that that, that made that problem concrete and and emotionally and we saw how it affected like people like monty and jasper and harper like we saw her have to face that like the humanizing of that choice and you know and the reality of real human beings are gonna die because of a choice that you made because you can't save everybody you know and and that to me feels like since like since we abandoned the list and since Arcadia burned and that whole storyline kind of got wiped off the map. I feel like the thing that we've lost is now it has become about, you know, the place where the show always loses me, which is sort of the big political Game of Thrones war moving the chess pieces around the table storylines where it's like it took me two times through watching this episode to even begin to make sense of the like wait, okay, so, like, who's holding the temple and who's holding the tower and how did Echo get there and who, what, like, just the, like, the moving parts of it, it's all, it's all this sort of big picture, like, it feels like Clark is playing chess and it doesn't really feel like, like, Clark is knee-deep in it, like, she was sitting at that desk crying and looking at this list of people you know, whose names she had to write down where every single one of them was a human being to her. Now it's like political gamesmanship with incredibly high stakes, but I don't really feel those Yeah, stakes, and I think not know? feeling the stakes has a, has like a bunch of, I think there's a bunch of things at play. One of them is um, is because like you said, it's sort of, it, the focus is on the sort of like political chess game and the abstraction of talking about like trying to save everyone, saving your people, saving my people, instead of, you know, with very little sense of sort of like, here are some individual people who will die. You know, another piece of it, I think that didn't quite, that that also sort of like doesn't quite work is like, Clark is acting like if everyone would just not fight this war, they could save everyone. That is still not true. They can only save 1200. And I get she's prioritizing, like, first I have to make sure that like, everyone calms down so we can even make this compromise. And I think, like, another huge issue for me, this is more fundamental. On the one hand, the sort of, like, death wave of radiation coming to wipe out everything in its path is, like, as big of stakes as you can have. Giant, unstoppable killing thing coming. On the other hand, because it's so big and it has no agent, you know, there's no like person causing it who can be talked to because it's a force of nature coming and inevitably to wipe you out at some point in some form, but not like, you know, but, but it's sort of like, again, abstractly, we don't see it coming really. Right, right. It has the problem that climate change has at, in terms of being difficult for people to kind of like mentally grasp and feel the stakes of 
because it is so huge and distributed and inchoate, although it's enormous, it doesn't feel enormous because all of the like signals in our lizard brain that tell us, holy shit, oncoming death aren't there. And so I think, again, it's like a hugely ambitious story to tell. And I do, I do appreciate like, like it's, you know, it's cool that they're like going that big. But I think the problem yeah. is, again, you can't, you can't emotionally feel the stakes of or connect with an abstraction. And something that big, a death wave of radiation is an abstraction. It's an abstraction until it arrives. Um, right. Just like climate change, the problem with climate change, arguably, and this is not this is not my idea. Like this is actually a thing that like, so like my my subfields, you know, I'm an English professor, but my my sort of like theoretical subfield is environmental studies. Um, you know, and one thing that people have been talking about a lot in environmental studies in the last several years, like decade or five years, something like that, is exactly this problem. Why is it difficult to sort of get people to feel urgency about climate change? It is undeniably species destroying level potentially catastrophic and when when things really hit the fan it's going to be bad beyond what you can sort of imagine so why is it so hard to make that feel real like what is it and and you know like and like i said like the leading theory and i i think this is true is that you don't notice it happening day to day you don't feel it you can't see it. You can't touch it. It's computer models. It's predictions. It's projections. Um, if it's if this if X happens, then Y will happen. But if A happens, then B will happen. It's too big and too abstract for us to be able to like for for most people to be able to sort of like parse as a threat. And I think in some ways, arguably the death wave as a story has that it has that narrative challenge and this is also like speaking of you know being in literary studies and doing environmental studies and you know i work on a period my my historical field is is prior to um climate change um but you know but i keep up on on the kind of literature and environmental studies stuff in general and one one thing that's been a topic of discussion among um fiction writers and among literary critics for the last like probably again 10 years is a question of what does climate change fiction look like what is how do you write a climate change novel um and one of the great challenges is again like how do you build a narrative around something that isn't an 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 event you know that is a slow 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 motion transformation of the systems of the world how do you write a story around that? And like, so, so, I mean, one way that they solved that is we have a countdown. They know when the death wave is arriving, they have six days, right? So like right. that creates urgency. I, so I think like, I, I don't think like this is, the, this is totally that problem. And like, you know, saying that countdown, I think is a really great idea because it does create sort of like something's coming, but who knows? It's like, well, they know. But I do think that one of the reasons why maybe the stakes don't feel feel quite as huge as they actually are it has to do with that sense of just kind of like inchoate massiveness you know like it's hard to wrap your brain around it and i think that's part of why the episode that i feel like really made those stakes feel the most real both on a plot level and a character level was the black rain coming Yes. Like took a, took a slice of that and made it real and immediate and present 
in a way that um, both sort of shifted everyone's relationship with the concept of this abstraction, but also brought out very deep character things based on having to face the reality of the fact that this is not a thing that is happening in the future. It's a thing that's happening right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I, yeah, think, I think it's... I, and I think Clark not having had that storyline yet, it does, it, like, I think it felt... For Bellamy and Kane and Harper and all of them, it, it was made concrete for them. And Clark is still in the abstraction part of that Yeah, story. well, and I think I was going to say, like, to be fair, they have done a bunch of stuff to make it concrete. So, like, the, the Black Rain episode yeah, yeah. was really great. Like, I thought they did, that was, and it arrived exactly when it needed to. You know, it kind of made things real. You know, when they were, when everybody was leaving, uh, Arcadia Bellamy said, like, make sure you know you're, you can always see the person who has the chem tent that you're assigned to, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And and even, like, uh, last, I think, yeah, uh, in 408 or whatever it was, you know, they were inside of the bunker and they were talking about, like, it was, there was black rain outside, you know? So, like, right. so right. it's not that, that there haven't, it's not that they have never made those stakes real stakes. I think it's just that, <sighs> see, this is why, I don't know, this is why I have such a hard time with this storyline. Because, like, the the Death Wave stakes felt so, like, remote in this storyline in this episode. And yet there's other places and in, in times when they've felt really, really real and, like, urgent. And I don't exactly, I can't exactly put my finger on why in this particular instance it didn't. And maybe it's just because, like, none of the grounders were acting like... They, that was a real thing to them. Like, they didn't give a shit. Yeah. You know? Like, I think maybe that's I mean, it. I mean, I guess, I think part of it to me is, I mean, I don't I don't want to speak for you, so maybe it's different for you, but for me, it feels like it's because this storyline could 100% fit into season two or season three. Yeah. With no death. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. I think that might be it. You know, yeah. like, this is, this was a, this was a political chess match storyline. And so, so even though the stakes of the chess match are literally like, who's going to be dead in five days because that didn't factor into the story that we watched happen, which was all about like elaborate political schemery and like everyone trying to outsmart everyone. It felt like a story that I, that I wanted the show to have evolved past because it felt like, like the one thing I was really excited about about this season, and we have gotten it in some ways, although not in others, is this this sort of idea that the enemy is so big that it sort of has to at some point be fundamentally unifying. And that the thing they keep bumping up against that makes it impossible to like come up with a coherent articulate plan to save all of humanity is all this dumb bullshit petty infighting yeah so i think part of where i feel like where i found that part frustrating i mean like and i love like i love a political schemery plot as much as the next person but i feel like four episodes from the end with the world exploding it feels like a battle royale for ultimate dominion of like who is in charge this exact conclave thing could have played out last season with lexa instead of octavia about something totally different and would have felt completely earned yeah you know, like this could have been like how lexa solved the problem of the sort of fracturing alliance and her whole thing with naya and it was like her versus naya and who's on whose side or whatever like you could graft all of these story elements onto a plot that was unrelated to like the storm is coming and they would still fit you know so I, I think some of it is it doesn't feel current and yeah and I think the other problem like I think a more sort of like f- fundamental problem with 
the political storyline in in the polis plot is that we still have absolutely no idea what the background or the stakes of this tree crew versus asgada thing are all we know is that they want to murder each other more than they want to not die of radiation like that's all we know but we have zero idea why we don't have any backstory we don't have any like context for you know i like asgado has was recently slaughtering tree crew villages but why did they do that like why did the Asgado warriors just decide to do that while they were walking home? Right, we have right. no clue. No clue whatsoever. And I think, like, that's a world-building problem. And I think that's, like, actually a serious problem in the storyline because it makes Rowan and Indra look completely unreasonable. We, we yeah. don't, like, they look like idiots. Why do they care yeah. about fighting so much? Why do they care about fighting each other more than they care about not dying in the death wave we have no explanation so all you know all we're left to conclude is like well grounders like to kill each other you know like grounders gonna grounder all about that murder you know yeah which which again it's like it's a world building problem and then it makes and then then it it sort of accidentally i think like unintentionally sets up a thing where like they look like idiots who are incapable of understanding what's actually important and whereas Clark and everyone, you know, and the Sky Crew are the only ones capable of understanding what's important. Like, Sky Crew can understand, like, fighting isn't important right now. We need to, you know, we need to band together. And, like, the Grounders are just like, we're not listening. We want to just kill each other, you know? So it makes Sky Crew look like smart and for, you know, and, and, and forward thinking. And Grounders just look like sort of dumb and violent. And I don't think that's what they meant to do. But because we don't understand why they're doing anything they're doing you know it's just sort of frustrating well i one of the things that made me think of and 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 i and part of me sort of wonders if i guess like looking for like what's the better version of this story that hits all the same plot beats uh there's a fantastic west wing episode called lord john marbury which i mostly love because it introduces the character of lord john marbury who is like one of my favorite like weirdo sort of semi-recurring he's a sort of like borderline insane like alcoholic womanizing british diplomat who is a specialist in the relationship between india and pakistan and so he's he's sort of half half comic relief half like this sort of brilliant you know political mind played by roger east who's hilarious he's a great character but um but the first episode where they introduced him and and it made me think of this sort of as get a thing because it's like there's a there's a way better and richer and more nuanced way to tell this story that that would circumvent a lot of these issues so they bring this guy in Who's been like, uh, who spent like twenty or thirty years in the diplomatic corps for the, for Great Britain, working with India and Pakistan, um, and they bring him in because there's like a military skirmish. There's like I think um, like Pakistan sends troops across the border, um, and so like the U.S. trying to figure out what to do, and you don't know how to intercede, and um, and it really sort of taps at you know it's like it's in the first season. The president's new, you know, and he doesn't have any military background, and so everyone's ideas about like, well, this is how you should fix the problem between India in Pakistan like just go in and do this or just go in and do this and the thing that Marbury keeps saying is these problems are thousands of years old like these problems between these two countries are older than your country in its entirety like you are a toddler you just got here you know and this is about religion and about culture and these things go back so far that the hubris of America 
thinking that they can just sort of swan in and be like, guys, I got this. I can fix your centuries-old problem. It's like the fundamental problem with the way that American foreign policy worked is that you're just sort of like a blunt instrument sort of butting in and being like, oh, no, it's cool. I don't need to understand the nuances of this complex thing. And I kept watching. So watching this episode, I kept thinking, you know, the, the juicier version of this story is to give us real context, real cultural discrepancy concept. Like, what is the thing that that happened 97 years ago where Ice Nation evolved differently? Because they clearly did. They're their own entity. No one knows why. But, like, <laughs> that, that, that something happened along the way, something between Becca Landing and now, where, like, fundamentally in terms of their governmental structure, in terms of their relationship with technology. There's all of these things about Ice Nation that are different. And if we even partially understood the roots of where those things come from and that they go, that they really do truly go down so deeply that Clark butting in and being like, guys, stop fighting. What we're seeing is the limited understanding that Sky Crew, who just landed and knows and, and still really genuinely knows nothing about these people, even though Clark continues to think that she does. Then it becomes about you have these two cultures that have never not been at war with each other, except for like five minutes when Lexa managed to kind of temporarily smooth things over. But that it's sort of a culture versus culture and we understand the roots of it. And then what it becomes about is like. This is not a problem that can be solved by, like, a white savior. Like, this is not a problem that can be solved by an outsider coming in and being like, you're all being stupid. It, like, I think it, it, it dignifies the conflict as being about something that's, like, hardwired into who these people are. And instead, because we don't know anything about it, it makes them all look like morons who should just stop what they're doing and listen to Clark. And, you know, like it looks like they're toddlers squabbling over a toy and mom comes in and is like play nice with each other. And they're like, okay, sorry. And I feel like that's just really, it cheapens these two really complicated characters, but it also misses a really interesting opportunity to explore what intercultural conflict and religious civil war look like and how they're not easy, clean things that you can just walk in and be like, all right, Ireland and Northern Ireland, I'm going to fix this for you. Right, yeah. All right, in Israel and Palestine, I'm going to fix this for you. It's like that, like, there's a, there's something really important. And I think because it's like, because this is an American TV show and this is an American foreign policy problem about the idea that a well-meaning outsider can just walk in and fix a problem that goes back hundreds or maybe even thousands of years and expect it to be that easy without really knowing what you're getting into, like, that I'm really interested in. But I think that is too self-aware. Like, I, yeah. I, think, I think that would, like, that, like, that's a version of this story that makes it about, like, that assumes that the writers find something fundamentally interesting in why these two groups are at war with each other and that what that thing is is worth exploring and dignifying and unpacking and understanding. And they just had not at any point shown any interest yeah, no, in that. And no. so, like, I want that, and they're not giving us that, and they're probably never going to. Right. So everyone just looks like an right, idiot. Right, right. I think, I think you're really – that's a really good point. And I think also, like, that, that kind of gets at a problem – I think that gets kind of to the heart of my frustration with – this whole storyline, and particularly with the the Commander Ascension fake-out, and why Roan calling out Clark for that didn't 
quite work for me. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But one of them, I think, is that they are trying to they're trying to have it both ways with Clark in this sense, where they're in that moment calling out Clark for basically like swanning in and being like, I'm just going to like do this thing and fix this problem that you guys have so we can move forward. You know, so like on the one hand, they're calling her out for that like sort of foreign policy mistake that you're making that, that you pointed out or version of that. But on the other hand, they also want us to believe because they've been saying it over and over and over and over and over again all season that Clark actually is special and unique and able to do right. things. Like, like right. they simultaneously, right. in the same episode, have Rowan say, if anyone can make, you know, can convince two mortal enemies to live together, it's you. And he genuinely means it. And then later on, have to, you know, like, so, so they want it both ways. They want to be able to call out, like, she, you know, like, but she shouldn't be arrogant, but also be like, but Clark is the most special leader who ever existed except for Lexa, and she's also special because she's just like Lexa. And they can solve everything that other people can't, you know? So it's like, and like, so part of the problem is like, those are mutually contradictory in ways that I don't think Mm -hmm. that they recognize. Mm -hmm. The exceptionalism of like, so you've had this like problem since time immemorial, but you haven't met me. I can come in here and solve it for you. Is baked into that idea of Clark being like super special born for it leader. And I don't think that they are fully in control of the ways that those two things are are part of each other. And that you can't disavow right. one part of it without dismantling yeah. the other part of it. Which I think also gets back to, like, Rowan calls Clark out, you know, for basically, like, what does he say? You know, he's, that she's, she's disrespecting their, their, you know, their, their beliefs. And, and yeah. that he's, and he calls her out for, you know, you think we're savages and you have to save us or something like that. So he calls her out for the, he, they, they specifically sort of highlight her high handedness and her manipulation. You know, the fact that she's kind right. of like, tries to sort of like manipulate them into doing what she wants because she thinks she has the best idea and she does it in a sort of like appropriative, disrespectful way. They call that part out. The problem is, like, there's a bunch of problems. One of the problems is that the way that the conflict between Indra and Roy or Tree Crew and Asgada is presented to us, Clark's reaction is actually totally logical. Like, Indra says to Clark, yes, a commander could stop us, but since there is no commander, you can't stop us. War it is. And Clark's right. like, well, if all you need is a commander... We got the chip. I'm a nightblood. Let's do this. Well, that's easy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like literally Indra is like the only thing that will stop us from doing what we do, which is kill each other for no apparent reason, but we just do it all the time, is if we have a queen pope again with like divinely appointed autocratic power to tell us you are not allowed to do that. And so like logically Clark is like, okay, okay, I will be your divinely appointed pope queen. I mean, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, so so the narrative, like, sets Clark up to make that decision, which it then sort of faults her for making. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying that, therefore, it's okay that Clark decided to do that. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. It absolutely yeah, is yeah, appropriate. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely yeah. is manipulative. You know, it's, like, disrespectful, whatever. She's basically, she's, like, trying to leverage their superstition in order to manipulate them into doing what she wants. Like, obviously, that's bad. But the point is basically to say that the fact that Clark does that is the product of these more fundamental world-building problems. Exactly. It's because we have nothing to hang our hat on 
to say that this blood feud between these two clans is anything other than stupid petty bullshit because they've never told us that it isn't. They've never given us a reason for it. And Indra basically lays out, this is a problem that has one solution. And Clark's like, uh, all right, uh, then I will do that. You <laughs> right. know, and yeah, it's a, like it is, it's, it's bad on a number of levels, but it's, it's not a problem that happened in this episode. Exactly. And then, and so like, I think the other, my other issue with, the fake out ascension. And and again, like the reason why as a kind of like why this didn't work for me as a sub as a subversion of the kind of like colonialist white savior issues that they have with Clark. Like they were very, very clearly trying to like lampshade that prop that criticism and then be like, look, we're disavowing it. Okay, well, now we're good. Um, the reason why I don't think, another reason why I don't think that works. So like one of them is that, you know, like these issues are like really baked in structurally into the world building in a way that like this didn't undo. Part of that is, so like on a, on a much more kind of like granular micro level, just in the dialogue. So like Roan calling himself and Rounders savages is a callback to a line that Clark said to Lexa in season two, you know, like prove to, to prove to us you aren't savages, but it does not actually a logical thing for Rowan to say about himself or his people. There is no reason why Rowan would like, it's not, it doesn't really make sense that Rowan would like make that projection onto himself. And by having him name it, it takes what could be a political conflict and says like, Nope, this is about Clark thinking that we're savages, you know, like it didn't actually need, you know, so I think it's sort of like, solidifies the problem in a way. Like, I don't know that like the savages thing, like I think it was meant to sort of be like, look, we're highlighting it to subvert it. I don't, I think it actually sort of like intensified the problem. Yeah. Because it 100% would have worked if it had just been about her, like doing this like really shady thing behind his back, essentially like going over Roan's head. Like the only person with more authority and polis than Roan would be a commander. You know, and so like Rowan has plenty of reasons to be pissed off that Clark, the fake Nightblood, is going to take the real flame right. and like all, yoink all that all power Rowan has for her to do own in reasons. That moment, all Rowan has to do in that moment is like remind her that she has no right to claim authority. Like the point is she has no right to claim authority over them. Like that's right. like there's really there's no reason to bring the savages thing into it and like bringing it into it doesn't actually like address or resolve any of the core problems. I think those would be like, have been better addressed by confronting, confronting the core problem, which is the clerk's assumption and the narrative's assumption that her authority, her ideas are inherently better. Right. Right. So that's problem number one. Then, then, then like granular dialogue, problem number two, when they bring in Abby and, and Rowan asks Abby to tell everyone, how did um, Clark become a nightblood? Abby says, through science. And then all of the grounders go, oh, you know. This made me fear. Yes. <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of them is that by having her say through science, again, weird giant abstraction, and then having the react the grounders react to the word science as though she, like, said the thing which shall not be said. It, it right. once again, it reinforces the idea that, A, there is a fundamental like insurmountable opposition between faith and science. It reaffirms the idea that the grounders are superstitious and afraid of or opposed to science, that science is something that like right. a boogeyman that it's like, that is, is 
you know, that they just all, like, are scandalized that she would even say through science. The fact that she says through science rather than explaining the process, precisely what she does, suggests that she doesn't believe that they will understand or that they have a right to understand precisely what she right. did rather than just, like, through science. Or explaining why she did it. Yeah. Or explaining, like, this was an attempt that we made to find a solution to Prime by that was going to save everybody. Here's what we did. Here's how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, so, like, it makes, then, it makes Abby look like an asshole. Yes. And, and Rowan immediately follows up by making the actually salient point that the fact that anyone can be a Nightblood undermines the... You know, right. the notion that, that undermines the sort of premise that having night blood is what qualifies you for this special role. But Right. This is the real exactly, problem. Like that like yeah. that's the problem. Quote unquote science is not the problem. That's the problem. So so like putting science in there, again, it sort of raises and reaffirms an issue that they were trying to avoid. If Abby had just said like Clark became, like, we took bone marrow from a night blood and injected it into Clark. And when you inject yeah. bone marrow from a night blood into a non-night blood, it makes the non-night blood a night blood. And, and, and right. therefore, like, this is what we were planning to do. If it worked on Clark, we were going to do it to everyone in order to inoculate you against radiation. Boom. Done. Right. Give, you give them the full explanation. You know, like, it's yeah. simple. You're not, like, acting like they don't understand. It's not about, like, science. Whoa. It's like... We right. did this thing for a reason. It has the effect of triggering, you know, a potential crisis of faith for those people who who really, you know, who like believe in this sort of the mysticism of night blood and of the flame. So, you know, again, like not to say that I think that this like Clark Commander Clark fake out is something that they ever should have done because I don't think it is um and I don't really see that it's like you didn't need that there to get to the battle royale you could have skipped that step entirely yeah I I don't think that it should ever have done it but like those are the reasons why if they did it in order to sort of like raise those issues and dismiss them this is why to me it did not do that at all <laughs> well and for and for me I know I totally agree and for me I I actually think one of the things that I that I found actually like really like like kind of offensive about that moment in this episode that is something that has been bugging me all season more and more and this really sort of brought it to a head is as a person who is religious the way this show treats religion is kind of like unbelievably insulting yeah the only characters that we've ever met in this whole show that have any kind of a, a sort of institutional, like any kind of a real sort of spirituality are like Vera Kane and Marcus like a little bit, but like mostly Vera. We see that these characters have like rituals. They have like, there's like, a, you know, there's the funeral words that they say, maybe meet again, you know, but that's sort of more like a cultural ritual and not really a religion. Yeah. And Vera is like, like she's a lovely character, but she's like- She's framed as a weirdo. Yeah, the story and the community of the Ark don't take her seriously. She has, you know, like the tree, and the tree gets, you know, like Marcus plants it, but like for his mom, not for any kind of spiritual reasons, and then it's never referred to again. So, so like, we have that, and then we have everything we've learned about the grounder religion. So, like, the whole point of, of what we're learning about grounder religion in season four 
is that it's bullshit. And and we learn sort of piece by piece by piece. First, we learn that what they believe is reincarnation is actually like a computer chip that lives in the commander's head and communicates things. So like, okay, fine. That like that I'm interested in. Like, I, I liked I liked it because it was like, like the crossover of those two different storylines. But that what that set up is now we, the audience, know, and Sky Crew, the enlightened, you know, science-loving people know that the fundamental basis of grounder religion is that they worship as though it is divine a thing which is a piece of technology because they're too dumb to understand it and it becomes wrapped in all this kind of superstition and then you know and then the next kind of glimpse of religion that we get is we get bill cadigan and his fucking shady ass doomsday cult which is obviously clearly and i don't know if we're going to get more of him later but like transparently a scam and we get you know jaha and all of his sort of cult like zealot mindset which which I think we're not meant to like exactly sympathize with that either. But then in this episode, what we really got was the culmination of this storyline that's been building um, that kind of spiked with the Kane and Rowan that's not blasting that science. They've been sort of pinging on this on this relationship between that that religion must be the fundamental role of religion is that it's the thing that you cling on to until you know better. Yeah. And like, and, and, and maybe, and like, (laughs) maybe I'm particularly heightened to this because of the timing of coming back from spending a week workshopping a play that I wrote about Jesuit astrophysicists at a Catholic theater company in New York, where like, I spent like my entire week talking about the intersection between faith and science and people who are scientists that are also people of faith. And I understand that depicting religion as a positive force in people's lives is not particularly trendy in pop culture. And it is also thorny and complicated and messy. And there isn't room for it in every single storyline. And there doesn't have to be. Like, this show doesn't have to be about religion. But I feel like if it's going to, if it's going to, if you're making the choice that religion is a part of this storyline, what this show is doing is equating all religion with scams or superstition. And so if that's the story that you're telling, like if that's what you believe, that's fine. But I don't know if they know that they're doing that. But it just feels like science is for smart people. Religion is for dumb people who don't understand yet. Or if not for dumb people. The thing that they believe in. If not for dumb people, then people who don't have enough information yet. Right, right. When you learn, like when you know better, like once you've learned the reality, then you will cease to be religious and everything will be fine. And I just like, and I, I, it just, it, it, it gets under my skin in a really primal way because it doesn't like, I don't feel like, I don't know that they are intentionally trying to do that. I think I don't think they are. I just, I just don't. I think it. It's like this really ugly sort of side effect of this kind of continual stumbling into these white savior savage tropes that a secondary sort of piece of it is the sort of idea that the fact of being religious implies that you are missing key information that if you had it, you would be like, oh, okay, there is no God, it's just a computer. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think think it's, I don't think it's intentional at all. I think it's the product of, some sort of like uninterrogated assumptions about science and faith being somehow antithetical. Um, yeah, and, you know, and I and Which I and I, I would be yeah. surprised if anybody in the writers' room actually. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody heard that and was like, "Wait, what?" You know, like I do. I think I didn't think that. You know, it's like I don't. I don't even know that it's conscious. And like you know, so I'm. I'm basically like 
I'm pretty much atheist. Like, I call myself an agnostic because, like, I just, you know, like, I don't know for sure that there isn't a God. But, like, I don't, I'm not religious and I'm not, you know, right, right. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, basically ag- atheist agnostic. But my work, I work on theology a lot. I work on, you know, mm-hmm. and religious writing and religious thought and stuff like that. And then also just sort of, like, a lot of stuff about the religion in this, in this show just strikes me as that is not how religion works. And that is not, right. that is not how people of sincere faith, that is not the relationship that they have with their faith. Right. I, it's also important to me, not just because I study this stuff, but because you're like, you know, you're my best friend and have been for 16 years. And like we talk, we have talked about science and religion and faith and theology a lot, you know, like, and it's very, very complex. And it's very, I, you know, I think the other thing about like, you know, so, so discovering that night blood can be made would logically trigger a crisis of faith for right for you know a lot of these grounders but the assumption yeah. the, the assumption that this show leaps to what you know what Rowan says which is basically or the in the implication which is like this religion is defunct because of this fact that's not how a crisis of faith works that's not necessarily what people would right. conclude from that some people might no some people might but maybe not knowing right. knowing that is a biological possibility to transfer you know bone marrow from one person to the other and make the other person a night blood it doesn't necessarily follow that grounder theology could not adapt to that fact. The Catholic right. Church adapted to the fact of uh, a heliocentric solar system. Exactly. Yeah. Religion adapts well, to and- scientific uh, discoveries all the time. And yeah, sometimes it's fraught. I'm yeah. not saying that it wouldn't cause a schism, you know, but like these things right, are complicated. Right, right, right. Well, and that's so. where I feel like where what I am interested in, and this is where I feel like they were they were telling a story where there there was like right next door there was a way more interesting version of the story, and they sort of skipped right past it and went for like the real obvious thing, which is like about savages, superstition. When really, what I'm interested in is Gaia's whole role in the institutional hierarchy of her religion is that she's a Nightblood scout because Nightbloods are so rare. There's like a whole priest class within the caste system whose job is just to like find them and bring them in and train them. And so where does Gaia see her own role in a world where anyone can be a Nightblood? You know, it's like it's like the gap between like, I'm a Catholic where only some people can be priests and you have to be chosen, you have to have a calling and you have to go through all this education and people have to like approve you and the bishop has, you know. And then, so like going from being Catholic to being something like a Unitarian where the whole infrastructure is that anyone can have any kind of a relationship with any kind of a God that they want to, like there's a real culture shock mm-hmm. there. If what you're used to is thing A, and then suddenly it's like, no, the hierarchy is gone, the infrastructure is gone, but your faith is not, like, that's assuming that faith is the same as institutional hierarchy. And I think that's part of what I find, like, it's just an uninteresting way to tell a story about religion. And it does really, it makes it about this savage thing instead of the more interesting thing being, what does it mean now if the rarity of nightbloods being sort of a core tenet of faith, like if you remove that, how does everything else have to kind of flex around that, Mm -hmm. you know? But yeah, but that's just like a, it's a messier and more interesting, but it's also more, like you said, like it, it, it's more a story about what real faith is like to real people who have faith. (laughs) And this, and this feels like, you know, this is a story about faith 
told by people who don't care about faith particularly. Yeah, or don't, or don't, like, don't share it. Or don't, don't understand, understand it, or don't it. share it, or, or sort of fundamentally assume that it kind of lessens your intelligence in some way, and, yeah. um, and so, like, that's just the thing where I was kind of like, all right, well, there's no way for that to not bug me. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, I really have to go to bed because it's one o'clock in the morning, but I yeah, was yeah. just gonna say, like, I was thinking, like, there is a possibility one could write, <laughs> if one wanted to be really dorky, like, one could write the fanfic offshoot of this where that moment is like the 95 theses moment that triggers no totally like the grounder reformation it, yeah, yeah like, the grounder you reformation have, you have like the one side that wants to preserve the hierarchy and the other side that's that sort of embraces the fact that anyone can be made a nightblood as being like the thing that makes you know like that's that's the grounder version of translating the bible into the vernacular it makes yes it makes the sacred accessible to all yes. people and not just I'm a certain s- cast. Yes, I'm so interested yeah. in this. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. And that would be like, yeah. that would be like fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I know. And like, and then like, how do people's roles change? And then like the idea of like direct communion with the divine versus having to sort of filter exactly. this hierarchy. I know. Exactly. I'm a, yes. Yeah. <sighs> so, anyway. anyway, we're dorks about right. theology, <laughs> among other things. Uh, well, now that it's been four hours and it's one o'clock in the morning for Aaron, um... <laughs> Uh, we will be back next week for um, episode 410, I mean, 49, but also 410 in this weird backwards world we live in, um, Die All, Die Merrily, which is um, the Hunger Games episode that we've all been very excited about. And we're sure we will have many things to say about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yes. so we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.